Welcome to We've Got Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while boys return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and um, Matt, Matt, hmm? I cannot hear hey. a word you're saying. I've got a report of a podcasting hazard blowing in from south. <sighs> Seriously, Matt. <sighs> Fine, proceed. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of interdimensional face maggots, wretched wedgies, and aliens-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week on the show, we continue to expose ourselves to ARC-18 radiation with chapters 18.4 and 18.5. The battle against the Titans has begun. And it goes about as good as you'd expect, with our heroes struggling to just stay alive, let alone turning the tide against their giant enemies. I mean, frankly, I think everyone's just blowing this whole thing way out of proportion, and all these guys just want to be friends. Matt, what did you think of these two chapters? Uh, fantastic, giant, uh, epic, huge battle chapters, right? Like, like the 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 escalation from you know the previous two chapters of everyone sitting around the fire, touching base for what may be the last time. I don't know. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, going into this battlefield, seeing everyone's reaction to the terrifying thing that they're about to have to confront, and then moving on into the point of actually actually fighting these things, it was really quite an experience. Um, I can't wait to talk about these. Yeah, I, I agree. It was, it was a lot of fun. Two two very heavy combat chapters, um, which is not something we normally focus on. But as per usual. As we were going through the notes, I think we found plenty of things to rip out and talk about specific to what these chapters are doing character wise and just the the writing on display here. It's just a, it's just really fun. It's just, it's just a couple of really fun chapters, even as like you feel hopeless as like you're sitting here reading these chapters, wondering to yourself, how the fuck are they going to get out of this one? You're still having a good time because it's just some good action. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, let's move into these chapters, Scott. Let's not let's wait any longer. 18.4. The team moves through portals from their treetop vantage in the Fallen Camp through the Warden's HQ where they're given mask, uh, gas masks, goggles, and 1980s cell phones. <laughs> so like we said uh, at the start, these are two pretty heavy combat chapters, and there's a couple of conversations aside. Um, but the thing that I was really, really paying special attention to uh, on on the when I was rereading these chapters is how Wildbow sets up character movements amongst this action outside of the specific conversation based character scenes that we had in the last two chapters and and I think this very early moment in this chapter with these gas masks is one of the ways in which he does it in this really interesting way because there's this whole Victoria Damsel subplot going on across these two chapters without either of them really like directly chatting with each other. Uh, but there's still like movement and and change and uh, and a whole back and forth going on here. And it starts here at the very beginning of this chapter where Victoria is just 
observing damsel struggle to get her gas mask on she's got blade hands and she just has having trouble getting it on to the point where uh she's having to kind of manipulate the elastic and it snaps against the side of her temple and makes her jump which is a very which is like you immediately know damsel seeing someone having someone see her jump is not something she's going to be happy with and and she notices victoria and glares and it's this this perfect there's this perfect setup for this this thing that continues throughout both of these chapters and maybe into into future ones that are not out yet but this idea of this like kind of almost unspoken back and forth that's going on between the two of them and i really really like it yeah i mean i I love that you pulled that out it's funny because like there's there's always a thousand subplots going on right like there's 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 pretty much perpetually on an ongoing basis there's like a victoria tristan subplot and a victoria kenzie subplot and a tristan kenzie subplot and a rain uh, uh, Roman subplot for all I know. I mean, like there's always so much going on that, that sometimes it's, it's hard for me to know what I should pick out um, exactly. But, but like definitely in these, in these two chapters specifically, there definitely is this through line of the Victoria damsel interactions. I, I would say it, it goes straight from here through to the, basically the end of, of uh, 18.5 and it's, it's really handled beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. And like we said, it might this might be just a, a long line of this that could take could continue into other chapters. But I really like it a lot. And I think you're right. There's so much going on here. Right. Like there's like Victoria is experimenting with her force field for the first time. We have this this beautiful moment between her and foil. We've got the Kenzie stuff we're about to talk about right now. But there's this almost like quiet just back and forth between these two characters that I just loved to death. That's set up. It, it, it's set up here now and pays off as we continue through the fight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so at this point, when they're about to go into the fight, they try to ditch Kenzie, but Kenzie continues to be exceptionally obstinate, <laughs> and uh, the malfunctions volunteer to be her minders. Which is another clever way of keeping Kenzie and withdrawal in pretty close proximity to each other, isn't it, Indeed, Matt? indeed. Um, I do like the malfunctions choice to step up here and how the text makes it painfully clear that this is not something they necessarily want to do, but something like they feel that they need to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And we have this line where finale says we're heroes. We gotta. And then Victoria notes, she looked terrified. Yeah. Um, and, and I love that. Like, it's interesting because I thought about this a little bit later after I finished reading for the second time, this idea that like what they've done here is they've, they found a way for them to be involved directly and helping, but they've also found a way to where they're probably not going to have to confront Eve directly. Yeah. Which is, I think something that they would have a very strong, uh, difficult time with. Um, we kind of see throughout these two chapters, we see Victoria and even the chapters before we see Victoria, like accidentally slipping with her names and calling Eve fumehood again Mm. and again. And she like chastises herself for it because, and I think that's like representative of her struggling to reframe this person as not the person I knew and liked, but this whole new thing. And if, if Victoria is having a difficult time with it, I think it's safe to assume that, that the major malfunctions are having an even more difficult time with it. So while they're scared and still being heroic and stepping up, they've managed to find a thing that keeps them away from potentially having to fight a person they respected as much as they did. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, and they're just not on the level where they can confront a threat like this, too. So, yeah, that's true. Um, I, I like how, like, at first, Finale says that, like, she says, I'll come to, like, and it's clearly impulsive. Um, and, and then she's, like, trying to psych herself up, but clearly yeah. terrified. Like, they, yeah. And so, like, Victoria's right. Like, these guys, as, like, it, you can see that Breakthrough is, is definitely on edge, and you could even say scared, but 
Um, at least they have like a, a competency as a team and attacking like pretty big threats and, and being in battles. But these guys have really not been, they haven't seen that much action. So they should, you know, they should kind of be kept, yeah. on, the, kept on the back like that. Yeah. So. I mean, certainly no one's seen anything quite like this, but at True. least a lot of the other people there have had um, Endbringer type experiences, which not quite the same, but similar. Uh, yeah. I mean, the closest thing in this book would maybe be fighting the, the, the um, hijacked uh dragon well i guess they were angels the 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 angel mechs yeah yeah um but even those weren't nearly this scope it was more just like okay problem solving against something that has kind of broken powers um this is this is a whole other scale though obviously yeah so the other thing i want to spend some time on is this this decision to kind of try to force kenzie to sit on the sidelines and i was thinking about this a lot And one of the things that I find the most fascinating about this is kind of like the inconsistent way with which Breakthrough enforces the rules and stipulations around Kenzie. Mm -hmm. Like we can have an ongoing moral debate about like the correct way to manage Kenzie. And we've done that in the past. And I I think before we go on to this, I want to say I think Breakthrough is generally trying to do their best. But outside what is like right or wrong about the way they're managing Kenzie, I definitely noticed that there are times when they're super inconsistent like there are times when they're totally fine with what what kenzie is doing or at least fine enough to where they don't actively try to stop her and then times where they just suddenly like draw a hard line and just say no you can't do this um like it's this this is a good example of that the time when suddenly they like were like absolutely like no no more gear in your head and they just drew this hard line and like I just think that there's this weirdness where like everyone's really fine leaning on Kenzie when she can do something for them that they really, really need. But then when it's a moment where maybe she's not as useful, they're just like, uh, 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 no, 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 no. And like, I, I think that's really interesting because it's probably kind of confusing for Kenzie. Yeah. Well, it feels very reactive, right? Like it's, sure. it's kind of like um, every time something actually goes wrong in a noticeable way, they crack down, but but when you zoom out, you're like, well, look, the reason why that went wrong in a noticeable, the, the reason why that went wrong in the first place was because of like the accumulation of burdens and stresses and choices, each of which was actually pretty pretty small when it happened. So like, yeah, I, I see what you mean, and and it is really interesting to consider like to to take this out of the genre fiction domain and consider a person like Kinsey. Like, how how do you manage someone who like who is very useful um to to you <laughs> but but like the way in which they're useful is somewhat harmful to them right it's it's a sure. it's a weird it's a weird thing to think about but it's um it, it's like like it's hard for me to think of any answer to this problem other than like she should never have been allowed on the field in the first place but then <laughs> she, but the, like then she wouldn't have accepted working with them so right, right. so yeah it, it, it's really tricky yeah, I mean, it's especially interesting considering, like, I think the what the book is setting up almost immediately is that if they're going to win the day or the the year, <laughs> Kenzie's scans and pictures are probably going to end up being fairly important to that. So, yeah, yeah. like, I, I don't know. Like, I just I'm always in the state of extremely concerned for Kenzie. I've been this way for two years, but I find it interesting in this moment where last chapter they questioned if the heartbroken are the best role models for Kenzie. I was kind of like, well are you guys? (laughs) And, and like, I I do think, I do think one of the things we see about swan song and for all the faults she had as a a human being, 
we generally see her as a person who understood Kenzie the best and was able to to help Kenzie the most. And I think one thing that is absolutely sure true about her is she was fairly consistent in the guidance and instructions she gave to Kenzie. Like, she, I don't think I don't think Swansong would have been like, no, you can't come to this one. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think she would have actually said that. And maybe that's fair. Maybe that's not fair to say that. Maybe that's presumptuous, but I don't know. I don't know. I just think it's very interesting to see where they're drawing the hard lines and where they're not. Like, for example, here we give Kenzie a definitive order, right? We say you ha- you can only come out for five minutes. You can only stay with us for maximum five minutes. Take your pictures, then leave. Except like last arc, Victoria just gave Kenzie a whole training on how to disobey orders when you feel like it's important enough. And right. like the inconsistencies with which they react to her and, and guide her uh, are just fascinating to me. Yeah, right. I mean, Victoria's definitely being a bad example here. Um, sure. It, I mean, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking multiple things at once here. So like, first of all, Swansong ended up being kind of a bad example because she threw herself into a situation that she couldn't get out of, which was something she always, she always told Kinsey she wouldn't do. Um, which then kind of prompts Kinsey to be in, in, in this mode of behavior where she's willing to throw herself into dangerous situations. Yeah. So yeah. you sort of see in both cases Kinsey following the lead of the women she looks up to. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think through whether I agree that that Swan Song. I, I think my model says that Swan Song is very, very firm and consistent on anything where it's like specifically impinges on Kinsey's issues, but putting herself in danger is not one of Kinsey's specific issues. So I could see I could see Swan Song being okay with Kinsey coming along on this mission. Yeah. Um because okay. but, but like if it were a specific thing where like like she, she, usually usually when Swan Song pipes up it's it's to keep it's to keep uh Kinsey from harming herself in True. some way that isn't obvious to other people. Yeah. And and I think here Kinsey's actually she genuinely just wants to get the pictures to, to be helpful. I, I, I don't know. It, it is really interesting. I, I find I, I admit that I find Kenzie to be a, a difficult Rubik's cube as a character because I, I just I don't know. I'm always less sure about my my thoughts on her than I am much of the time. So it, it's it's fun to think about though. Yeah, I mean, I I I agree with that. I I it feels like she's always kind of not shifting. She's not really changing, but my understanding of what's going on with her constantly shifts. And whenever I, I think I've got a, a, a real handle on it, um, seems like something else happens where I'm like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I, and I don't like, and I don't mean to point this out to like criticize Victoria and break through. Like I said, I think they're doing what they think is best. Um, but it, 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 it does seem like at times they like forget what's best for Kenzie. If it is something that, is particularly useful to what they need. Like, like just, just the idea of like, yes, hack into this prison, please hack into this prison and help us. That'd be very good. Good, good, good. And then like next day is like, no, you can't hack into this facility. This is bad. And like the, the line between what is good hacking and what is no, you've crossed the line hacking, um, seems inconsistent from her perspective. And maybe that's unfair to her. Maybe I'm like, taking away too much of her agency and the ability to tell apart this and just assuming that she can only make choices based on what other people are, um, are, are showing her. And I think she's a little bit smarter than that, but I I do think this story has established that she is very much a, a, 
a learn through observation type of person. Also, I mean, I, I was thinking about her and like like one of her core traits as a character is like precocious intelligence and competence. Mm-hmm. And so um, if, if you just look at it from her point of view, basically, she just is going to do what she's going to do. And then every once in a while, she knows that something is going to go sideways and then her team is going to be like, holy shit, you were you were hacking into all the traffic cameras in the entire city. And then she's going to have to be like, oh, shucks. I didn't know. <laughs> like, right. like, 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 I don't even know whether to call that manipulation or just like biting the bullet, you know? Like, sure, like, sure. Because she's not dishonest, right? She's just like, she just does her thing. And, and it's, it's almost more of an attitude of better to ask uh, forgiveness than permission because she just, she, she does just do her thing and she doesn't really trust like, yeah, she'll listen if you put a very firm boundary in place, but she'll totally try to find a way to weasel around that boundary immediately and, and rather shamelessly too. So like, I think the most, like the the only time I make progress with Kenzie is when I put myself in her shoes and try to look at the situation, the way it looks to her and the way it looks to her is like, okay, Victoria, she means well, but she pays like 2% of her total attention to me. And that's, that basically means I can get away with whatever I want to do. And, um, yeah. Which like when I say it that way, it sounds bad, but I don't really, I I think she's just like a, that's just the way a a 13 year old is or 12 year old or whatever. Like I think that's just pretty normal kind of mentality actually. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's all I got. Yeah. I mean, I I think, I think that's the, the, the most interesting thing about me is like, there is a lot of her that is very just kind of standard, 13 year old but also kind of combined with the specific issues she has that just kind of exacerbates all that stuff um and and i i do i do just i do love this idea of the inconsistency that Mm. that we see here like i I just yes this this situation is super serious but from her perspective the places where they're drawing the lines got to be like what what like i i still think the whole pushing back on her with with regards to shoving all the tech into her brain was probably the right call to to draw that line but from her perspective it's got to be like what you just sometimes you guys are just like don't do this and then sometimes you're like yeah do it and you're just confusing me yeah right especially that one where she's like but this is like the most useful i've ever been and right. you're telling yeah. me no. <laughs> exactly exactly yeah so it's a cool thing to think about and something i think we should pay more attention to maybe from that specific angle as we continue to see the difficulties of that Kenzie is going to be going through through yeah. the rest of this book. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, all right, moving on. I, I just love this bit where withdrawal is like, uh, you people keep saying you're heartbroken. I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's just fantastic. Cause I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a great, there's always so much comedy to be mined from like different types of character rubbing up against each other, you know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I love it. And I think it kind of matches what we were talking about with the major malfunctions last week as how they are kind of serving to remind us of what the heartbroken are like from a, pe- a perspective of people that have not hung out with them as much as we have. Yeah. Um, and, and it's this little beat of ignorance, the sorry, I've never heard of you. I don't know who Heartbreaker is. And it's like this. It's this, also just this great way of reinforcing this idea that, like, we're all living our own lives and suffering on in our own thing, like withdrawal has a terrible parent that really fucked him up just like they do. But like, we're all living our, on our own path and suffering in our own ways. And 
a lot of, I think what this book is doing is bringing these suffering people together. And like this realization that, Oh, I have no idea that you went through all these terrible things. I had never even heard of that. And like, just learn about how other people are suffering, especially when we take someone like, like, uh, like withdrawal, who is like a badass hero and then put him in contact with these people, like the heartbroken, these kind of damaged, sometimes scary people. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from the heartbroken. Like they definitely, went through some heinous shit but like they they have they almost have a chip on their shoulder about it where they're like they almost can't believe that any other parahuman has suffered as much as they have and it, it's it's almost like i almost want to see them get taken down a peg in a twisted way oh, <laughs> like, God, like jesus like well no because because like it's such a it's such a thing for them we're like i'm heartbroken i don't have to and it's like yeah i mean like we're all we all went through shit guys come on yeah. I mean, um, especially like I think I think withdrawal and maybe the major malfunctions in general are a great way to explore that. Right. Mm-hmm. Because these are people that I mean, it, it just feels fucked up to compare trauma in general. Right. But yes, they went through some pretty heinous stuff as well. And um, maybe it's a path for both sides to come to an understanding of people. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I'm I'm a sick, twisted individual, so I, I, I want to see I want to see the trauma Olympics here. Yes, of course. Um, so Darlene next uh, networks everyone before the fight, which proves to be a very practical way, I think, of giving us an almost Taylor-like understanding of the battlefield space through these augmented senses. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like as a plot device, it's just really clever, especially as we're about to go into one of the biggest, uh, widest scope, most intense battles of the book so far. But it's also just thematically delicious, right? Like our our heroes are out there trying to fighting to stop the Titans from connecting or subsuming each other. We're not even really sure what all this means. And to do so, they are all connected and not just in the ways Victoria pointed out last week and the the friendships and the team teammates and the way these characters were that were bring them to the warmth of the fire. But now we've also literally connected to them all. Um, they are literally connected to each other. As we fight to stop these other connections, we are all connected. Yeah. And it's just, I really like it a lot. When you pulled that out, it made me immediately wonder if this is going to be one of those things that like dips back and forth over the metaphor line where, where like it becomes plot relevant that they're connected in, in some way. Like, oh, they can't be pulled into the, the like they the, it's harder for them to, to go Titan or whatever because they're literally powers tied to each other. Um, yeah. I mean, that that is an interesting interesting way to look at it that maybe they've made themselves immune mm -hmm. to tightening without realizing it through this this shared connection yeah i mean even if it's not the case in a powers sense i i agree with you that it it works on the metaphorical level super well yeah 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 and and i love how the book kind of draws us to this parallel by having victoria talk to the fragile one in this moment, like she like we're, we're drawing the, this parallel between the connections of the capes to the connections of the Titans themselves or the shards, whatever you want to call it, because she says this is how they experience the world. This must be how you experience the world, fragile one, seeing around the corner, so to speak, into Earth that I don't occupy. Um, I just love that. I, and once again, I read creepiness in this and I don't want to because like I, I I'm like we're about to see like badass Victoria using her force field in a way she's never done it before in like awesome ways, but I can't help but like, just, just like, this must be how you experience the world. Fragile one. I just can't help but be creeped out by that. I'm sorry. 
Yeah, fragile one. We didn't talk about it specifically before, but it's such an interesting. It's almost like a diminutive, like cute name. Yeah, for, yeah. Like something you might call like 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 your your baby child or something. Mm-hmm. Where I mean, it would actually be kind of creepy to call your baby child fragile one because that like emphasizes the ways in which they're, you know, fragile. Um, sure. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it, it kind of has that that mouthfeel of like precious you know <laughs> where, yeah, where, it's, yeah. where it's like i i can't quite put my finger on why this why this is mildly disconcerting other than i mean it just kind of is right like i i agree with you though i i read i read into it um creepiness yeah in a word yeah, yeah. and it's interesting because i think my opinion on what what and how this interaction between victoria and her shard is going to impact the plot has shifted and changed over the course of these last few chapters where i'm i'm less like doom and gloom about this whole thing like i think i think actually what the book has kind of done is positioned victoria as as this person with like this incredibly unique relationship with her shard that not many if any other parahumans have and that is going to pay off in some interesting way in the future but at the same time as much as i'm like oh this is going to be key to the resolution of the story i'm also like also that's really creepy yeah yeah no i I, i'm i guess i'm with you there like well i i guess i'm more ambivalent but like i don't know if this is going to turn out to be good or secretly bad or what exactly i'm 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 actually kind of open-minded about it at this point because i can see it going either way very easily yeah i think the one thing we can absolutely say with reasonable certainty is it's going to be important. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. It's not just, it's not just, and then, and then she reached peace with her shard and uh, then the plot resolved in an unrelated fashion. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. 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 Uh, So I think it's really cool. The effect that the gas masks and the goggles have on things. Cause like Tristan and others complain that it's uncomfortable. It muffles their speech really badly. It doesn't quite let their costume masks fit as intended. Um, it, it's like we've taken this background element of the parahumans universe and the superhero genre in general, and we're just saying things are too serious for that now. Your mask doesn't fit anymore with this situation. Yeah, that angle on it did not occur to me at all until I, I saw that you said this, and I think you're like absolutely onto something here. And it's really interesting to me because I think the Titans serve. <laughs> like they serve kind of both things at once, right? I think they serve as a shift away from the game as symbolized by this aesthetically unpleasing gas mask and like kind of the giant stupid phones, like the eighties phones that they're given. It's just none of it's sleek. None of it's cool. It's not fitting with the game of, of capedom. Uh, but also while absolutely being that it is also kind of a way to go back to the old unwritten rules, right? We see in the next chapter, I think it is where, Tattletale specifically says when someone says, I can't believe you're helping me out. You're a villain. She says, hey, with threats like this, hero and villain work together. That's just what we do. So it's like it's it's both a return to a time from before and something uniquely different at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think I like it. I like the kind of the dichotomy of that. It It's just it's really interesting to me that, like, in some ways we're returning to to the status quo of hero villain relationships mm-hmm. and in some ways we're moving as far away as we ever had from the idea of heroes and villains and costumes and and this whole this whole thing right i mean it reminds me of nothing so much as gold morning where one that was another time when they got everyone together 
regardless of alignment. And we're just like, all right, like this is it. We got to, we got to beat this one guy or we're, we're all going to die. Yeah. And that's basically what's happening again here. We've got, we've got everybody working together basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, turns out that before they go through the portals, turns out that they, they don't have Vicky's guns. They didn't, they didn't get them. I've never been so disappointed in my entire life. <laughs> She even gave up holding on to the giant cell phone to Tristan so she could hold all the guns. Uh-huh. And then she got no guns. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if the request for the guns was like sent up through the wardens and Miss Militia and Defiant got, got it. And we're like, what? <laughs> no. <laughs> what? <laughs> what is wrong with? Damn it. <laughs> uh, um, see, what's funny is I didn't really read much into it until this moment. And now I'm like. Is this just one of those very subtle moments of like the warden's chain of command is not super functional because like you can imagine her saying that to somebody and then them like trying to pass it up the chain of command. And then the people, you know, the people who are receiving it being like, I don't I don't know what to do with this information like mm-hmm. guns. I, I don't have any guns. Who do I, who do I call about this? And, and then just like it getting dropped because there's something else important happening. I mean, also, it's kind of a it's kind of a chaotic situation. So. Yeah, you can understand kind of a weird request like that getting dropped. But like, I mean, it, it, any organization is going to have trouble processing like a really unconventional request. Sure. So, uh, but but yeah, like it, it it's 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 I was like so <laughs> sure that she was going to get the guns and then it was going to be like, oh, OK, we'll we'll see where this goes. And it's like, no, yeah. we didn't. Uh, what guns? No, we didn't do that. What are you talking yeah. about? And I mean, the interesting part here is there are kind of two outcomes of this whole thing, right? Like either she gets the guns eventually and that's going to be saying something about not only Victoria, but about the the the, the um, structure around her or she never gets the guns. And that's going to be saying something, too. Right. Like e- even if even if this is just a plan that Victoria had that she tried to make happen and it never comes to fruition, um, the reaction of the the powers that be to this is going to be significant in some way. And so I'm kind of interested in, in the way this resolves, regardless of which way it is. Mm -hmm. Like if we like, yes, in my mind, Victoria, like becoming like fucking flying artillery, just with a bunch of big guns is the most amazing imagery ever. I, I, I am interested in whichever way it resolves. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see because like Weibo usually thinks things through in a in a very like wide scope way so so i'm you could even be like they considered using guns and they decided against it for some legitimate reason like like presumably they have the ability to like bring this militia in and just fire a hydrogen bomb at them or something like like there's, there's got to be reasons why they don't just you know basically use kind of an uh i don't know I, i'm i'm like something like the examples I'm thinking of don't actually work. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bail on that line of thought, but, but I, I basically agree with you that we're going to see, we're going to see something come of this, right? Like that. I don't think that's the last mention of the guns in the story. Yeah. I don't think it's just going to kind of leave this dangling. Yeah. Um, It it feels, it feels like a significant, I mean, it was a significant thing for Victoria to make the request in the first place. So yeah, w- the way it resolves seems like it would be significant. Yeah. Cause guns mean something to Victoria. Uh-huh. They're a complicated kind of symbol. Yep. So as we move through the portals into the city, Wildo paints this beautiful picture for us of 
this colorful team of heroes and villains embarking into this dark gray, white, and black, basically colorless battleground. There's white sea foam draining into the endless black crack, and it's all wrapped in this constant noise of whistling wind, and, and later it becomes noises of destruction as well, described as a constant horrible noise that never found any resolution or climax. I wonder if something like the noise is a thing that like only works in book form. <laughs> <laughs> I like I, trying to think of like a, a a film version of this that doesn't just drive the people watching insane. If you want to do it like the correct way it's described. And sure. I mean, yeah, like my brain simulated what this sounded like for like five seconds. And then I was like, all right, I'm done with that. Yeah. And yeah, because it's it's awful. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And and you can still register in your in your mind as yes, this is rec- occurring all throughout right but you don't actually have to hear it <laughs> right exactly i i love this this kind of setting this this beautiful painted picture that you described here and it's hard to pick what my favorite part is i love the violence of the the foaming water that noise we were just talking about but i think my favorite thing here is the the contrast uh, in color um the the book describes the colors of each of the hero contrasting with the surrounding which is nothing but bleak grays and then the white froth and then some of the black compared to the heroes in the reds and blues and greens and yellows and there's all this color like this stark image against the the kind of mundanity and and bleakness um and i love that here like it's just this this like almost these these colors are this like this depiction of hope or life or uh existence that that is there to kind of contrast with what is the world now um and i don't know i just really appreciated that that image yeah i I kind of read it the same way as you like this flower you know this living thing injecting itself into this this wound in the world yeah Um, it's really cool there is something else here that jumped out at me as we're kind of talking about the colors of everyone and victoria describes kenzie's costume as kind of the most monochrome out of all of them but even still she has a little bit of color in her creepy mask and then it describes her mask as having a frozen smile and i think this is just like we kind of failed to talk about this at first but we we had this introduction of this creepy mask that Victoria talked about um, and how she like didn't do any enough to steer Kenzie away from it. And I don't remember. It's very possible we got a description of this before, but we just missed it. But I want to talk about it here because basically what it says here is the eyes of a mask had glow- glowing gold irises set above a frozen smile, kind of indicating that the mask she's wearing is in a constant state of smiling, which, of course, we know for our Kenzie that smiling has a very specific meaning that is not the standard one. Yeah. I mean, um, so, so first of all, it, it, this reminds me that Victoria has, has in the past thought things like, um, man, Kenzie's Kenzie's mask and helmet just look a little bit too villainous. Like, like I'm going to have to work on her, you know, her, her image, her image management. Yeah. And, and, and then never le- does. And then she never does. And to me that that reads in retrospect as like, oh, that was setting the seeds for Kinsey basically joining this villain team um, and eventually sort of going full villain. I mean, the story is not over, but I see this direction of her joining. She she is officially on the chicken tenders, which is basically a villain team. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Well. Are they? Well, sort yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> I mean, most of them. The line are, is so blurred now. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they do mercenary work, right? Yeah. Um, but it, but also like now, now that we're at this point, she has like 
you know, creepy frozen smile. She has glowing gold irises, gold being a color strongly associated with bad things in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, the, the, so so to return to kind of I think what the thrust of your question was, like the idea of a smile for Kenzie, it's it's her mask is taking on this attribute of Kenzie herself in kind of a creepy way you know yeah and it's 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 making external like one of her worst habits almost mm-hmm. um this 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 hiding the way she was feeling behind this smile mm-hmm. um and at uh, part of like we we spent a lot of time a little bit earlier talking about Kenzie and kind of trying to figure out Kenzie and i think one of the things you said is that that I completely agree with is that she's very intelligent and she's kind of, um, kind of reasons things out in an interesting way. And it, it strikes me that Kenzie might have like recognized that people have cracked her smile code maybe. Yeah. And then, so putting on this mask is a way of like projecting the smiling without, while still hiding whatever's behind it in a way that's different from her. Like, I don't know. Do we know if this mask is just a projection? It could be, but like, I think like one of the things that, that her team has been very critical of her is using projections to like hide her face in different ways. Like the idea of that she's showing her face, making her face look normal. Whereas she behind it, she's actually exhausted or doing something else. Like the team has been pretty against that. And so this is a way that we could just hide it behind just a, a, a superhero mask. And that way you can't ever see what I'm feeling or what I'm doing or any, any of my emotions. It's, it's protected behind this, this smiling frozen mm. mask. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. Um, I mean, I, I feel like, <laughs> I'm probably going too far with this, but like if Sl- if Kinsey were in the Slaughterhouse Nine, her oh, Slaughterhouse God. Nine mask would totally have like a creepy smile on it, right? Like like that would be that would be the way that you that 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 you turn Kinsey into a creepy monster villain would be to emphasize this particular trait that she that she has. Yeah. Um, everything is fine. I'm smiling. See, uh, even yeah. when it's definitely not. Yeah, it's it's a way of it's. I mean, it descri- the the text describes it as a frozen smile, which is just perfect because it's a way of just perpetually projecting this everything's fine yeah. image. Yeah. Um, and, and and it was always false, right? Like like when she's smiling, when she's physically naturally smiling, it was bullshit. And now it's even even more removed from the way she's feeling because it's just a frozen constant smile. Yeah, right. Yeah. I Love mean, yeah, just, just very just, very worried. Very it's, worried. It's, yeah, it's 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 great. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh so so the tone here as we enter into this this battleground is very precise in what I'm going to call its sense of doom. Uh cuz we have all these moments of like Tristan trying to be brave and be a leader but then betraying mm-hmm. his feelings of defeat when he looks at the Titan and and then he swaps out to Byron and Byron gives this, this little who of of odd horror and all these little, all these little character moments that really kind of add up to create this feeling. Yeah, and I love. I think the, the contrast here is really great because Wild Bill constructs this moment where Tristan, uh, Victoria compares Tristan to, to Chevalier, which is like it's the just the man, it's the dude. Like he's he's the one of the most inspiring 
heroes out there. And so it's a big it's a big thing to make that comparison. And then immediately after that, immediately, like we see that just just this little speech he gives like puffs withdrawal up a little bit. It's a skill that Victoria even herself admits that she doesn't quite have. But Tristan does. But then we immediately contrast that with the reality of the situation where we see him look over and like feel the 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 weight of the situation drag down on him and just quickly contrasting between those two things i think really helps sell the emotion that wild Bo's trying to make here this like this doom you're absolutely right this despite everything despite some of the best people trying to encourage you they're just as freaked out as you are yeah 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 and then also like you said that the the byron moment that victoria specifically calls out as so uh, beyond what Byron normally would do that it it like stokes fear in her mm-hmm. like Byron's usually a very kind of quiet and reserved person and that kind of emotional like who like yeah. is so so different for him it makes her scared too it's just it's just perfect I love it yeah I mean I think they all know they're in over their heads but but just saying that doesn't feel like anything you, you have to dramatize it by showing the characters reacting to it and that's yeah. what Wildbo's done here really really well yeah there's also this this uh, our continuing damsel beats. There's this one where damsel says, fact, I'm going to find out if I can connect an annihilation blast to that thing's face, yeah. <laughs> which is this really great damsel moment. And then Victoria is just, just like, hey, um, be careful. We don't know how effective the gas masks are. And damsel spits back. Don't tell me what to do. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like we're we, again, we're seeing this beat continue throughout this kind of back and forth between them that has existed, you know, it's basically basically the whole book. But especially since we lost Swan Song, we're see, seeing that play out here. And it's really yeah. great. Yep. 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 One of the things that I really like here that is another kind of continuing motif throughout these two chapters and I expect going forward is this frustration that victoria is feeling at her lack of knowledge like we see in this moment she says like that like she's taking in what's happening and she said yeah dropped off between two titans each proceeding steadily toward one another to clash mate create a crack that would glow i wish i knew more about what a connection entailed and this is again something that she's going to say over and over again and this it's it's this desire to know more and the frustration at lack of knowledge here um and and so the scholarly side of victoria is like really annoyed that she just we don't know anything about these things what do they want how are they going to achieve what they want and what exactly is going to happen when they do are things she doesn't know and she feels like this would this is the key to figuring out how to defeat them and it's frustrating her and that that yeah. adds to that feeling of doom i think yeah i love it later on when she's like scholar the fuck up victoria like, yeah like, exactly yeah uh, that's um right because that that's her mo is to go immediately to the place of problem solving and here she's just standing between these monsters and, and just like trying to do the problem solving but it's just like a big question mark she has no she has no way to approach it because she just doesn't understand yeah yeah so that i think this is kind of great this 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 moment um, where Victoria's about to grab Tristan to go fly somewhere. And, and Tristan says, sorry, I know I'm heavy. And then she says, I don't think that's a problem anymore. I started <laughs> my grip and the metal creaked. Why? He asked in the same moment I took flight. I saw a flash of his face as he peered through the goggles and passed the metal of his helmet to see me with my arms at my sides. I could feel his gut lurch through syndicate's power. Uh, 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 <laughs> 
Look, I'm very happy that Victoria has gotten her power under control and the ways in which she's going to use it in this battle are like fucking awesome. Yeah. But I don't know, man. Maybe like communicate with your team Uh that you're going to pick them up using the thing that almost killed your mother like a week ago. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe just communicate just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. I, you know, I try not to be repetitive too much. Um, but like the, this doesn't seem like an Antares move. This seems like more of a Glory Girl move. Like it, it's it's definitely it's definitely funny, right? It's a fun yeah. it's a fun moment. It's it's kind of a triumphal moment. But like she scared the shit out of Tristan for no good reason. You know, <laughs> right. it's it's uh at like like in the moment I enjoyed it, but like on like reflecting on every reading, you're like, yeah, I don't know about that, Victoria. Yeah, and, and I like what you said about this doesn't seem like an Antares moment. And and I mean, part of what I've been kind of quietly pondering all throughout every single moment since we left the dream room is is if there if there are these breadcrumbs of victoria is not quite acting like herself that we could pick up on or that Mm -hmm. like like months from now when we're looking back at these moments are they going to be like oh yes obviously that was an indication that was an indication of the change and we just didn't see it at the time but we can see it clearly now and so i'm very interested in these and and i like this as one of those moments of just like this kind of unnecessary recklessness mm-hmm. um that like and and before like her her reticence in talking about the, the wretch before was was specifically to how it tied to her trauma and and how it, she kind of saw it as like uh revealing something close and intimate about herself to her team and she really didn't want to and that made a lot of sense but like i don't quite line the, the the choice to not do it here except for via this super dramatic moment that is is objectively hilarious to the same feelings right like it's an, i don't think it's connected to that so it is it is a different choice to do it in this moment yeah. well you could, i mean yeah i think to, to to lay it out like the motivation for not telling them about her power before was from a place of shame yeah the, the motivation for not telling them about her power now is like almost like secretiveness and and not wanting them to ask too many questions about why she had this realignment. Oh yeah, I like I like that framing. Yeah, um, which feels very different, right? It, it's it's a little bit less of a noble uh, motivation. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I I, I think I, I just ultimately this moment I think worked on me the way it was supposed to work on me. But then when I went back and read it later, I I had I had to had to pull it out as an example of um impulsive sort of callousness that 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 glory girl would go for and and you don't really think of it being a thoughtful and terry's trait yeah i, I like that I, I think i think that's absolutely right I, I think it works in the moment but on further examination is the exact way to frame that so yeah yeah, yeah. we do get this beat and I, I think it's really interesting because this th- this reveal to Tristan gives this beat where Tristan connects Victoria's power change kind of to the changing nature of his and Byron's power as well. And and how theirs happened at a shift in their relationships. Hers happened at a point of like a near death experience where she was forced to kind of like reexamine herself. Um, and I, this is this is an interesting kind of line of thought because. I'm wondering if this is going to pay off in some kind of interesting way in the future. And I mean, one of the ways we see it kind of directly pay off is this conversation around Tristan and the changing nature of his powers um, allows Victoria to kind of go down the rabbit's hole of 
Well, if his power can change, it means there's other abilities connected to his power that he doesn't have access to. And it allows her to kind of like go down the line of thinking that gets her to, oh, the Titans are shards that are people that have full access to the portfolio of powers connected to the shard. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the only purpose of making this connection. Maybe that's the only purpose of tying Victoria's changing power to Tristan and Byron's changing power. I kind of think there's going to be a little bit something more to it, but in the moment, that's kind of how the book a lot gets us from point A to B with with Victoria recognizing this this portfolio reveal. Yeah, I like that connection. I don't even know if I made that connection consciously. Um, the, the idea that that there's a a thread between her observation and Tristan's observation and 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 what she learns about the Titans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Love it. Uh, so as we're going through these these chapters, I just adore this recurring beat of torso just running like a toddler along the street into the distance which pays off so amazingly amazingly later yeah that's what we get from making fun of torso and then he's like a beast yeah of course uh, like of course right of course it was going to be this way yeah so i uh, want to talk about this moment a bit with you though sure um how do you feel about this as a tension relief like because throughout this fight this very intense very deadly dramatic fight we are periodically cutting to torso and Every time it happens, I think it's hilarious. Like every moment, it's just this really kind of kind of hilarious cut, cut to torso falling down again. Do you I mean, how do you feel about this? Do you think this is good or is it so tension cutting that it kind of messes with the stakes of the scene? So, um, yeah. So, so I think it's I think it's perfect um, as it is. Um, I, I think you actually need moments of of like incremental tension release as you go through a scene like this otherwise it becomes monotonous in its tone um you know i was just watching indiana jones um the other day recently and it was really like emphasizing to me how much because like i've watched that movie a trillion times as a kid but i haven't watched it that many times as an adult and and those movies it's so much like dire physical stakes mixed in with with moments of pure comic relief but but none of them really pop the bubble right you you always you you can always get back into the mode of like no no it's dangerous um and i think that's i think that that works here right like if the torso scenes weren't weren't here the the scene would actually the, the whole the whole chapter would feel different yeah yeah and i completely agree with that i was doing one of those things where i pose a question knowing exactly which way I feel and just giving you the opportunity to agree with me. And you did. So good job. Yeah. So it was um, a test. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, um, no, I totally agree with you. I think, I think you don't want, especially action scenes. You don't want to be all, you don't want to play the same note over and over again. Cause eventually, even if that's a really nice sounding note, it's going to get kind of boring. Um, you need to shift it up. And I, I like, this is one of the things that the Marvel movies do a lot and to varying success, according to different people, right? Some people, this works really well for them. Some people, it just completely cuts the tension and ruins the scene for them. Uh, I'm not one of those people, but I I do think this threads the needle rather nicely. I I agree with you that you don't lose any of the pathos of any of the really dramatic scenes, but you're also giving your reader just a little bit of moments of breaks. And, and I think we'll see this. It's not just torso, right? I think there there are other moments throughout these fights where it's moments of, whether it be humor, it's moments of just like like relief in other ways or just moments of awe like Victoria, the the 
wretch drill is like a moment that is not tense in the same way the the doom and gloom we were talking about is tense it's kind of this like holy shit that's awesome kind of thing yeah and and i think the one of the thing this fight plays with that a lot it, it like builds tension and then you release it slightly by giving someone a laugh but then you go right back to it in a different way um you can't you it can't all be one one thing and i do completely agree that the torso stuff threads that needle really really well yeah yeah it, it is it is cool how the like the the level of word like like concern we have jumps around so much like the, like like whenever we're just with victoria doing her kind of solo attacks there's this feeling of like oh this is badass and then when we, when we get this is more going to be in the next chapter but when when we're more worried about like the heartbroken characters on the rooftop that's more of a like oh i i could totally buy these characters could die right here like this this is this is super super dangerous um any of them could die right now and i'm yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm worried about them on that level it's it's sort of badass but it's but i'm actually i'm actually worried for them also um yeah but even in even in those we have the bite me moment which yeah, is yeah, hilarious true. yeah so like it, it, I, I don't know i think i think sometimes and i kind of posed this question to you specifically to get to talk about this because i think sometimes we worry too much about like the idea of tension breaking moments um and 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 how they're going to affect the overall mood of the scene because mm-hmm. i think i think as long as you play a dramatic moment as dramatic and let it play out you can have a funny beat right after it like yeah. it doesn't matter cuz i think both moments will land yeah uh, it, it's it's really interesting i mean i, I almost want to after this conversation just sit down and think about the way marvel does it versus the way other things do it because the the, the way marvel does it i, I enjoy but I also see what people are complaining about. And, and then I, I mentally contrast that with like the moment in, in uh, uh, um, last crusade, Indiana Jones last crusade where like he shoots the Luger and it goes through like four Nazis. And then he just like <laughs> looks down at the gun quizzically in disbelief. And, and, and that, that takes like 0.7 seconds and it's funny and then it's over and then they just move on from it. Right. So like it, it yeah. is comic relief, but like the, he doesn't like stare into the camera and like say anything like the, it, they don't make a thing of it. It's just happens and then it's passed. And, and that to me is kind of what this what these moments with like torso feel like where like you just kind of see Victoria like watching him waddle down the street and then and then her attention is yanked back onto the more pertinent thing that's happening. Um, the, the text doesn't like dwell on it and, and, and wallow in it, you know. Yeah, that's, I think that's I think that's a really good way of framing it. I like the Indiana Jones comparison because I think you're absolutely right. I think it those movie those movies are so chock full of great comedic beats um, that just kind of jump in and then and then leave. And yeah. I think 100 percent. These are these are Indiana Jones moments. And I'm going to call them that from now on because I like that. <laughs> perfect. That perfect. Yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah, that's a perfect, perfect example. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So turns out that the Titans are going to fight. Because the winner of the fight will then subjugate the other and pull them into their network. And, you know, what's interesting is we, the readers, want Eve to win. But as far as the heroes are concerned, the, they don't know that. They just want the Titans <laughs> to, to be kept from joining at all. Yeah, and I'm still, I'm still, like, very hesitantly confident about our whole good Titan theory. <laughs> Though I was really hoping that our, our, our friend Obi over here would be on that team. And it's looking like a no. Yeah. Um, it, it is interesting 
we do learn throughout the, this fight that regardless of what team these Titans are, even if the Eve Dauntless combination ends up being the good guys, um, they're going to fight and that fighting will hurt people around them. Uh, Eve still kills people. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if even if she's just nobly trying to keep the world together, she kills some some capes today. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think my my internal feeling or, or theory or however, however you want to phrase it is that is that um, fumehood is is somewhere inside Eve in a way that Prancer and Moose are not somewhere inside Oberyn. Um, if you ask me to justify that, I guess I would just have to say that it kind of felt that way from the end of her interlude. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I just feel like characters who had more of a hold on the process of their transformation, like her and like Dauntless, uh, did end up with a, with a sliver of themselves remaining in the Titan. But that doesn't really mean that she's like steering this thing. It just means that right. she's got a hand somewhere on the dashboard. Um, so the fact that she's killing bystanders is like, I don't, I don't think she can avoid that, but yeah. Um, maybe she can help set high level goals. It would be interesting. I I like that comparison a lot because that goes directly back to the wretch Mm -hmm. and, and waste, right? Like Mm -hmm. maybe they're there. And maybe I think we might've talked about this back when Dauntless became a thing, but that they are controlling the Titan, the the people that are still inside there, maybe Fumehood is controlling the Titan. Like, like waste was controlling the force field in that yeah. they barely kind of could maybe direct it mm-hmm. in a certain direction, but without any control, I think that would be a really interesting thing. And I, I basically agree with that guess. I think it is very deliberate that we get from Kenzie in the next chapter, what look at one Titan and it happens to be one of the ones we know is not connected to the ones we think are good. And like, so one conclusion to reach would there be like, Oh, all the, all the people are gone forever, but I, I like I like the idea that no, maybe with Dauntless and Fumehood, it's a little bit different. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, it makes me happy. That's the other reason mm-hmm. I believe it. Yeah, sometimes we sometimes we cling to optimism <laughs> even when we shouldn't. Uh, yeah, that's that's the trait of mine for sure. <laughs> um, so Eve's gas uh, appears to have a component that makes it corrode at people and buildings, and then the holes it creates birth. Horrible, horrible maggot things. It's like, uh, like there's worms in the apple, right? I love it. That's right? that's the worst thing I've ever heard. How did I not make that connection? <laughs> it's awful, but it's great. Yeah, I mean, I also, I, I like, I love that it's just like gas, gas plus horrible things. Yep. Um, the gas yeah. can do everything. Yeah, it's just, it's it was just the gas power, and mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's that's fun. So Oberyn makes this giant leap for Eve. It's like a, a mile long and probably about that high in the air based on the way physics works. And Victoria like flies up into the air to grab a hold of one of his hooves in order to pull him off balance so he'll crash land. You get the sense that like his hoof is like bigger than a car or something. I don't know. It, yeah. It's not, but so she she then loops around and then picks up some cars and hurls them at him. <laughs> And then she attacks him with her force field tooth and nail, clawing a divot into his arm. Uh, basically, this is just a, a long, awesome sequence of her just going completely all out with her newfound control and power. Yeah, and it just doesn't make it that much of a difference is the really tough part. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is awesome. It's fucking sure. awesome. But it's yeah, really- it's, 
it's I mean, she does about as much damage to it as anybody else does in the fight. Right. Yeah. I, I love this scene and I don't have too much to say about it. That's like smart or clever or anything. It's massive. It's epic. Watching these Titans fight each other kind of reminds me of the first time I read about the Leviathan fight back in worm. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just like things have just suddenly escalated to a level that I hadn't seen it before. And it's whore awesome in the best possible meaning of the word that we made up, like the buildings being knocked over Oberon having this this ridiculous speed that doesn't match his size at all. The shockwaves, the pink gas, the fact that like as both the pink gas does its work and as Victoria does her work, like there's blood gushing from these things and it just doesn't matter. Like it's meaningless. Like you think you think reading about blood gushing you'd be like yes we did it and they just like don't care like oberon is just like covered in holes like pockmarked in holes and gushing blood and it's just like i think she says like he's not even breathing heavily um which Mm -hmm. do they do they breathe (laughs) i guess right Um, yeah they seem like the whole their form seems so extraneous yeah their body um it almost makes you wonder what it is gonna look like when one of them beats another of them, you know, like like how much damage do they have to inflict for it to qualify as a defeat? Right. Yeah. I do love that Victoria literally like throws herself right between these things. Like the, the the idea that Oberon jumps into the air and Victoria is just like, well, I'm just going to go grab it. (laughs) I'm just going to go grab this giant monster. Um, I I love the, the, the force field drill. Um, like I love that that was kind of set up like, Throughout the book, we've had these moments where, like, Victoria's moved around in her force field and her force field's kind of moved around her. So, like, it's not surprising that you could just make it spin and it would kind of work as, like, a drill thing. But it's just so satisfying to see when you're just like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> right. Like, that's one thing where it, it, it seems like she can give it, like, rotational speed and then it just maintains that speed even when it's shredding through something. Yeah. Which which is not something we necessarily knew. But, like, when you think about it, you're like, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> Makes sense. I'll mm-hmm. give you that. And, and it's, you know, incredibly, incredibly destructive and powerful. All, yeah. all this stuff that... All this stuff that Wildo has probably been waiting the whole story to show off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally gets the opportunity. There's a lot of that feeling throughout these two chapters. Like Mm -hmm. like this idea that like, oh, we're finally getting to show off some really cool ideas. um, Mm -hmm. And we see him here. And like the text kind of reflects that because you see Victoria like talking to herself like, come on, come on, girl. You didn't nearly lose your mind sitting in that situation room so you could do nothing now. Mm -hmm. And of course, like it's so... Like everything, all the frustration that she felt in almost the entirety of arc 17, she's just taking it out now. And the saddest part is that it's barely doing anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, they're not winning. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, not to, not to pull the spotlight away from Victoria in this awesome moment, but it, it's interesting to go into, into damsel's headspace for a second because to her mind you can you can imagine that maybe this is like she's seeing this as like oh yeah i've done this before Mm -hmm. i've i've taken down a a titan before um of course the thing that she took down was basically just a big lump of wood that happened to be slightly ambulatory but but like you can almost you can almost feel her like disappointment that she can't do more damage than she's able to Uh, she's clearly throwing herself into it with just as much aggression as victoria is yeah totally. and it's like and it's like why is she doing that why is she putting herself into that level of risk and i really think a big a big element of it is like to show how strong she is to to herself and everyone else 
Um, and then of course, again, it doesn't, it doesn't have the impact that she hopes it will. And that just makes her even more frustrated. Yeah. I think one of my favorite parts about these two chapters is just like this one moment where like Victoria just looks up and sees damsel has somehow gotten on one of the Titans and it's just blasting it. And you're like, how the fuck did you do that? (laughs) Like we don't even get to see how she does it. We just see her there where it's like, whoa. Yeah. Right. That's, that's one fun thing about this battle overall is like. Victoria does a thing and then we catch up with everyone else and it's clear that they've been through hell yeah, in, in, yeah. The, in the last 30 seconds or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the, the heroes continue to batter and, and distract doing damage to Oberyn, but none of it ever adds up to anything like we were saying. Perhaps they've nudged the battle in Eve's, sla- in Eve's favor slightly, but Oberyn doesn't even really seem to have noticed them. Um, for the first while, neither of the Titans is really acting against the heroes except passively, like with the gas and the occasional shockwave clap. Um, but eventually at about the point that Torso finally nails Eve with the epic headbutt, (laughs) Titans do take notice of the parahumans. Yeah. And, but it's like in a very kind of insignificant way, right? It's almost as if the parahumans are just flies buzzing around their heads. Like the, the two, the two big boys are fighting and the insects are buzzing around. And then like, eventually the insects sting you enough where you're just like, uh, and you finally just say, okay, I'm going to squash you. But they're still just an insect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it just like really punctuates like the hopelessness uh, of this whole thing. Right. Uh, especially, especially as we kind of lead to what happens at the end of the next chapter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least Leviathan takes you seriously enough to fight you and you attack him. These, these guys are just like you said, it's the, uh, they're like, I'll, I'll pay attention to you because you've mildly inconvenienced me in my attack on my actual target. But yeah. They don't actually care about the humans and it really makes the stakes, the, the, the danger feel that much higher. Yeah. And it's like, they have to maintain balance too. Right. So like they're barely effective, but also if they feel like any one of them is getting the upper hand, they have to switch to fighting that one. And so like, it's kind of like in, a, in an MMO RPG where you have to kill the two bad guys within five seconds of each other, or they both respawn or something. It's kind of uh-huh. like that. Like you have to take their health, health pools down evenly. Um, and so like, it's just all part of the complicated mess that is this whole fight. And especially s- since like anytime they succeed, it means that she has to switch to battling her friend in Fumehood. Like, yeah, I, I just like, it's just, it's just this beautiful, complex, like emotional fight in every sense of the word like it's hard it's a it's like physically and mentally exhausting it's just so good it's just so fun mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's perfect um so that this moment toward the end of the chapter is great where she lands by tattletale and the text says i saw about 15 different emotions cross tattletale's face eyes behind goggles lower face behind the clear gas mask none of them were good um Oh, and, then, man. and then we end this chapter with Tattletale sharing the load of knowing that things are super, super bad with her BFF, Victoria. Yep. She basically says, um, even if we win, we don't win. Yeah. And yeah. This is going to keep happening. It's going to get worse. There's, there's no there's no actual way out of this. It's going to last hundreds of years. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're boned. Even if we win every fight from here on out, all we'll do is hold the line. And every week or month for the next 300 years, there will be more cracks, more Titans. Um, uh, There's a lot to talk about here, Matt. The first thing I want to talk about is like basically Lisa says, don't tell anyone this. 
I'm only telling you because I kind of like you and also I kind of hate you. And Ugh. it's this like the, the you said BFF and it's absolutely true. Like this relationship between Victoria and Lisa that has been such an important part of this book, I think has just gone to a different level here. Like yeah. we're like, I'm good. Like, and of course Lisa plays it off in the most Lisa way possible, but like she chose Victoria to tell this to. Right. Yeah, she, she's reaching out for support because yeah. right in this moment, she probably her power, we can assume, tells her like uh, how bad this is. She's the mm -hmm. only one who understands how bad it is, maybe the only one in the world. Um, and she and she's reaching out to to share her burden with someone. And she she leans on this person who she's come to see as, you know, a friend of me or, or whatever, whatever the word is. I think a friend, I think as much of a friend as somebody like, like Lisa actually gets. Yeah, and we've seen that she's not terribly close to any of the undersiders, really. So it's possible that Victoria is her best friend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she doesn't tell Imp. She doesn't tell any of the other undersiders. Like, she chooses to tell Victoria. Like, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, okay, let's say that Kenzie surely knows now, right? Because <laughs> Kenzie. Yeah, yeah fair. But, but, yeah, I mean, I, this is really significant. And I also think there's something to to the fact that Lisa probably knows what Ken, what Victoria's reaction to this is going to be because Victoria's reaction to this is the same reaction she's been having since the very first part of the book where someone says, this is the new normal. This is the new status quo. This is the way things are now. And her reaction to this is no, I won't. No, I will do whatever I can. I will do everything within my power to stop that from happening. And if you're Lisa and you're feeling hopeless, you're feeling like, like, the reality of the situation thanks to your wonderful power has just come crashing down on your head to the point where 15 different emotions are going through your head at the same time. Maybe it's good to have the person here that you know is going to hear that information and not give up, not toss in the towel, not just say, well, shit, you're going to have the person, maybe one of the only people that is going to say, absolutely fucking not, I'm not yeah. going to let that happen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, uh, I mean, it was, it probably bolsters her resolve a little bit to have Victoria react this way. It's, I think it's, so. It's a pretty awesome moment. Yeah. It's, it's a great, it's a great, I mean, we had that discussion question just a few weeks ago that was like people that you want to see be best friends. And this is them reaching this point after everything they've been through where she's like, all right, you're the one person who I'm going to trust with this. Yeah. So. Yeah. So uh, one of the reasons I like this a lot. When I first read this chapter, and I think we talked about this online too, where I was just basically like, hey, I think the the book's going to move away from the Titan fighting for a bit. Um, and I mean, it, I still think that's possible. Obviously, it doesn't happen in the next chapter, but I do think it's very interesting the situations that's that's been constructed here because like we're basically told fighting is useless, but also completely necessary. Like, we can't just say, okay, well, this isn't going to win. This isn't going to win, make us win. We're not going to solve the problem by fighting these things. So like the, the natural reaction is to say, okay, retreat, regroup, and try to solve the problem a different way. But up, uh, except if you do that, they'll, they'll win and combine and it'll be even harder. So it's a situation where you're like, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I think that's just a really powerful way to construct a problem that forces everyone to keep fighting while mm -hmm. also being aware that the fighting is kind of useless. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I do feel like they're going to, um, end up going into the black cracks and having to fight in the shard dimension. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but, um, but when that's going to happen in terms of, you know, what chapter, I, I don't know. Could be next chapter. It could be the end of the arc. Who knows? Mm-hmm. We'll see. Uh, let's move on. Cause it, I mean, pretty much the fight just continues straight on into 18.5. Yeah. And so I always enjoy, cape fights um but this this set piece just really reaches new heights especially in this chapter uh i mean most of this chapter is just like a sequence of these insane edge of your seat moments yeah i I feel like this is this was an especially hard one for me to kind of prep for because it is just like constant amazing moments that i i don't i don't just want to be a podcast of me saying look at this this is cool that was tight yeah yeah right uh, I do like that overall in 18.4, we had a lot of like direct confrontation with the Titans. And like, even as it didn't do a lot, we felt like progress was kind of eked out. But in this chapter, much of this is still epic set piece, but most of what they're doing is literally just survive. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not even, they're not even like, like making prog like they're not yeah. even really directly attacking the titans anymore except for the annihilators as they're named uh yeah. foil and and uh and damsel like most of the time it's just literally like the hardest job they've ever done just to like get onto a building or not fall down like it's just like it, it's it's so exhausting in, in a way like yeah i love the introduction introduction of the slime as just this thing that like is deadly on its own, but in like an annoying kind of way. <laughs> right, right. It 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 just hampers their ability to survive from all the other shit that's happening. Yeah. I think yeah. Victoria says it best when she's like, it takes us five minutes to recover from what it takes them five seconds to fuck up, basically. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember the exact quote, but but like that's that's, that, that's where they are for this chapter. Right. Yeah. Um so Oberon stomp like uh stomp shatters buildings and then causes the debris to float into the air knocking everybody into a state of scrambling for safety again. He then uses the breakerized chunks of floating building as shields and projectiles as the battle continues. <laughs> Victoria drops Tattletail off with the rooftop champs, and then uh, uh, Tattletail immediately re- renders aid in fishing out interdimensional maggots from their faces. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, um, that's really gross. That's it's, really gross. It's fucking awful. I love it. <laughs> So one of the things that I think the book is kind of quietly doing in the background is just like sprinkling who's going to go Titans next seeds everywhere. Um, We've talked about some of the most overt examples of them. Like Tristan was a very obvious like wink towards it. I think there's some there's some ground laid for Kenzie as well. Um, But I think there are all these side characters we're doing this for as well. And I, I think like just just the way the book is written is like allowing these possibilities to exist in very clever ways because we see as Victoria flies Tattletail to the rooftop champs um, to help them out. We see that they've lost someone already. And the way that's described is very interesting, right? Tattletail says Alpine is probably dead. They have that look about them like they're missing that connection. And there's a lot of weight behind that word choice there, right? Like they're missing that connection. Yeah. This book has talked so much about connections, especially in the past few chapters. So it's it's very significant the way that Tattletale chooses to describe that loss of a member of their team in that way. They've lost a connection. And I just feel like this is just laying those seeds. Like who's right. going to go Titan next? If this happens again, who's going to be the next person? And we're just like 
allowing the possibilities to exist. And this will continue to happen. I think the book does it again with foil here in a bit as well. Like they were just like showing the ways in which this fight and everything around it is pulling and, and straining the connections between people. Yeah, that's a good point. Because foil is like, yeah, my, my personal relationships aren't doing great. Yeah. Yep. I think it's, I think it's cool that Tattletail uses this, this word because she has historically been the character who uses canon words what, mm-hmm. what's, what, what's a better word she, she's the only one who's ever used the word shard or she was the first one to use the word shard for example yeah in the text which is only a word used by scion prior to that um so the fact that she's thinking in terms of like the connections is like yeah that's i mean tattletale does think that way tattletale right. understands the way this, this stuff works so it doesn't it's not wild though winking at us it's it's no tattletale actually understands that that's the relevant factor here Mm-hmm. Um, so she is thinking in terms of these connections and yeah. being aware of them and fostering them and so forth. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Like I, I of course, she would use that word um, yeah. Yeah. out of anyone. Yeah, it's kind of a way to Tattletale is such a great character to like. Like I called her the the exposition character in the past, and mm-hmm. it, it's always it's always great how the book uses her to explore things in different ways that you kind of couldn't get away with other characters doing. Um, through her power, I really like it. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I I don't remember if it was one of us that made this quip or or if we read it somewhere, but basically, Tattletail's power is access to r slash parahumans. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, yes. Um, so Tattletail then uh, comforts the victims um, with the thought that their wounds might heal naturally since they're extra dimensional so that was oh, nice yeah that's cool dimensional bugs yeah i mean i mean i i, I like the idea that she is being caring here like, yeah yeah there's there's really no snark i mean there's a little snarkiness because it's lisa <laughs> but it is you're absolutely right that it comes from a genuine place of i am trying to make this person feel better um and we could be super cynical and say it's because she's knows that if she doesn't try to pick people up and allow and get people to uh, feeling good. They could be a potential risk in the future. That's the most cynical take on this. The other take is just that she's changing and is being kind to people that she see needs it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that over the course of the story, we've seen a lot more sort of, um, not, not strictly required moments of compassion and care from, from, from Tattletail. So yeah. 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 Um, there is something else we need to touch on here and I, I kind of want to talk to you about, we, we hinted at this before where there's this moment where, um, this teenager hero says, thank you. Didn't expect a villain to help. And Tattletail responds when shit's this bad, those labels stop meaning anything. Those are the rules. Let's see if we can pin this bastard down. And then she pulls out a bunch of fucking needles. She's yeah. badass. She That's just great. carries around hypodermic needles with her for some reason. Um, but I want to talk to you about this because we hinted at it earlier and I kind of want to work through this because once again, we're seeing hero and villain come together because there's this big world defining threat. And so this idea of this unifying force of people coming together Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering, and I'm wondering if maybe the book is going to approach this or talk about this and maybe not, this could just be random speculation, but this idea of, the goal of this book seems to be coming together, 
community, the strength and being in working together and coming together, like kind of Taylor's goal from the first book realized, but not through literal mind control. Um, and I'm wondering if, if there's this idea that that can't happen unless you have some external force, right? Like, cause we saw Scion happened, everyone came together, Scion defeated, everything starts to break into its old pattern again. Big bad thing happens, whoop, together again. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, if this is going to be a commentary on if, 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 if people are capable of doing, of doing that coming together without some sort of incredibly dangerous external force that they need, they need to come together against. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's definitely, I mean, it, it's, it's a cool theme in this work. It's a cool theme that I've liked in other things that the idea of, of humanity really does fantastic things when we have a common enemy. Yeah. And as soon as we don't, then we turn into apes. Um, I, I do, I, I do wonder where this is going. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I like it though. What if Ward is just a giant metaphor for global warming? Um, that's and and that's all. Nothing beyond that. Yeah, nothing else. Yeah, yeah I mean, we'll we'll see, right? We'll <laughs> just have to see. <laughs> um, all right, Scott, it's time for a massive tangent. Okay. Text says, "I heard the buzz for communications device, the five-pound cell phone." I hesitated. Okay, so five-pound cell phone. I don't know. That just struck a, a memory for me. Um, remember the five pounds of gun speech? I do remember the five pounds of gun speech. Do you mean from Daybreak 1, the first chapter of the book? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. I pulled it out for you. Do you want to read it? I'll read it. Less than five pounds of gun, if you even have a gun, Jasper said, holding up the gun with the bike lock threaded through it. He caught my eye as he said it, and he had a gleam in his eye. Fifteen pounds of armor. It'll be twenty-five pounds of armor if you're with us for the long haul. These backpacks, they're heavy. They're miserable. Twenty-five pounds strapped to you. Food, water, first aid, tools. He holstered his gun and lifted up the bag with two hands, grunting a bit. Pay attention to those ratios. Twenty-five pounds of stuff to support and help. So so we're so she asked for like seven hundred pounds of gun. <laughs> right. And she has five pounds of support, right? I just thought that was a fun experience fairly explicit line drawn back to the beginning of the book right yeah i mean i i I love like i think we kind of hinted at this last week the connection and i think i saw a great a great meme on worm memes the the subreddit worm memes like (laughs) the, the whole point of the speech the whole point of the ratio was supposed to be the pounds are supposed to uh represent the focus right yeah. So the the idea that most of the weight they carry is 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 for support mm-hmm. indicates they should be primarily focused on support and the least thing they should be focused on is offense is mm-hmm. damage is hurting is violence. And yeah, yeah I mean, we're we've kind of we are indeed seeing this situation flip. And and I love that you pulled out the five pounds of gun as as an inverse of that. And I think you're. I think you're right there. I mean, it fits too well. It's like perfect. It's the idea that like we've gone, we've flipped the script almost from the beginning mm-hmm. of the book. And, and and maybe to even modify something that I, that I said, a, a cell phone is not, I mean, it is support, but what a cell phone really is, is communication mm-hmm. or connection. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to stretch a little bit, but like, like if she wants massive firepower, 
and all, and, but she's only willing to carry around the minimal amount of equipment necessary to communicate in this situation where communication and connection is really the solution to the problem. Um, then the guns are strictly the wrong answer. Like maybe mm-hmm. she's going to get her guns and maybe it's going to be a disaster. It's going it, to, we're going to be in a situation where like, Oh no, that wasn't the right choice at all. Actually. Yeah. I wonder if you can look specifically at her saying, no, I don't, I'm not going to take the cell phone because I'm, my hands are going to be full mm-hmm. as literally, mm-hmm. as literally making that choice as mm-hmm. eschewing the d- the device of communication of connection and going for the, the device of violence and destruction. I love it. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. All um, right. That's really cool. I like, that. Over. I like that a whole lot. Um, yeah. I was going to say something else and then I just blanked on it. Oh, um, what do you think? What do you think about ki- kind of tangentially related to this? There are multiple beats throughout this, these two chapters where Victoria sees someone that needs help and like rushes to help them. But before she gets there, either someone else has helped them or they've helped themselves. Um, mm. Do you think that that ties into this feeling at all? Like this, like, I mean, part of it, I think, is just this way of frustrating Victoria and making her feel useless. Um, but I wonder if there's something more to it than that. Uh, I mean, I'm going to just pick a direction to head in. I, I think that what is happening in this battle is that their communication is broken down, I, I, like going yeah. on from the, the thread of the of the cell phone being cumbersome and hard to use and, and maybe not terribly reliable. They also have these gas masks where they can't really shout to each other effectively. There's also this horrible deafening noise, which drowns out everything. Mm-hmm. Um, like everything is is going in concert towards making it impossible for these people to communicate, right? Like that's yeah, that's if you step back from it, that's a huge thing that's going on, right? Like, like, like it's not a coincidence in my mind. We've got gas masks and we've got huge deafening noise. And we've got vast distances um, that like normally they don't fight over like a, a mile wide battlefield, right? Normally it's like a couple blocks or whatever. Sure, sure. Um, so I, I, I feel like I feel like it has a lot to do with um, communication interruption. Do you think it's uh, it's interesting to me that, that I think you're 100 percent right, but they are connected, right? Like mm-hmm. they're through syndicate they are all connected to each other but they are not communicating with each other and i think that is interesting yeah i i agree i think that's cool i i I understand that that yeah that's fascinating the idea that maybe like what does that mean is that going to turn out to be important in some specific way yeah yeah yeah. that that's that's fun thanks for reminding me of that but i don't know i don't know what the answer is though yeah i don't either it's one of those things where i just offer up a question and then (laughs) and hope maybe maybe you've got an answer or we can just go cool Let's or, move on. Or perhaps the text will answer it eventually and then that'll yeah, be satisfying. Absolutely. So we learn at about this point that the group fighting Augur lost and now Augur is incorporating the machine army into his body. Yay. Um, I was afraid of this. I should have made a prediction, but like my last week I said like, well, he's fighting the machine army and that's good. Uh, what was actually <laughs> happening in my mind is I was like, oh no, he's going to fight them and he's going to like take over pieces of them. Um, so anyway, then Augur beat the sub- beat and subjugated Titan Scotty, the terrifying teleporting one. Yay! So Scotty now officially joins Team Oberogger. Uh huh. Oberogger. Um, and and this is a moment where I wondered if everyone else kind of had the same reaction I did. Like as soon as we got this information, 
my mind immediately went to, oh, well, Scotty's definitely going to show up in this fight, like 100%. Like now she's directly connected to one of the Titans they're fighting against. She's definitely going to show up here. And maybe that was just me, but I thought the eventuality was so inevitable that like the, the rest of the chapter just became this hanging tension of when is Scotty going to show up? Um, and I think, I think even with that in my head, I, I still think, I still think it like the, the, the moment where she shows up works super well. Um, I love it. I love it. Yeah. But I was like utterly convinced this was going to happen and was like, Oh God. So I was just waiting for it. I was just waiting. I don't remember exactly what my expectation was the first time I read it. I think I might have been like, well, she if she was going to show up here, she would have showed up already. And so I just kind of wrote it off as not an immediate concern. And then I stopped thinking about it. I think that's kind of where my mind went. It was not something that was in the back of my mind as I was reading. Okay, interesting, so, interesting. Um, I wonder yeah. how much like, I wonder how different we absorbed all the action with that that completely different approach to it sure that's interesting yeah definitely um i i i mean i feel like you definitely caught something that was meant to be caught or or at least there to be caught and and i and i didn't at all really so um yeah i don't know i mean i, de- yeah. I definitely still think I, I i don't know if it's constructed for you to feel like that's an inevitability or not um well if you know. notice i mean i think all you have to do is put together that that Augur and Oberon are on a team and now Scotty is on the same team as Oberon and, and bada bing bada boom as they say. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, I, I don't think I necessarily even, I don't know. I don't remember. I'm just going to pretend that I almost got there, uh, but okay. didn't, didn't quite. Yeah. Okay. There is another beat here of Victoria's scholarly frustration as she, as she kind of tries to figure out what all this means. Like she says, how much of his decision to do this floating shockwave stomp had been because of that battle had turned was energy shared between them. Had he been contributing something to Augur? What did a connection mean? Um, do you, you want to have fun with this? What do you think a connection means in this regard? Are they sharing powers? Are they sharing power? Um, do they learn and strategize together? Um, Cause I mean, one of the things we know about, the shards in general is that they're kind of uncreative things and the way they adapt and change is through their connections to each other. Right. Yeah. So, um, they, are, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to kind of speculate on. Yeah. They've, they've, I think we have some evidence at least that they're trying to create a new hub and whatever that yeah. means a hub, you think of it as being a centralized decision maker, um, with, with, you know, outlying sub, you know, sub decision makers, if you will, so, like, the idea that they share power, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I feel like they could probably, the Shards could probably draw power from Scion back when he was around if they wanted to or if if you wanted to give it to them. Um, mm-hmm. Share information between them. Uh, you know, coordinate high-level goals that the, that the Shards themselves would then execute on. And then we also know that once the cycle is complete, they all rejoin into one massive colony organism type, hive mind type thing. Um... I don't actually I don't think hive mind is the right word. I, I think I need to flush that out because I think that's like a very old conception of how the shards work that's not really accurate. Because clearly clearly like Scion was like one thing that was in charge of everything else. I don't know. I don't really know how, how to think about it. I do wonder if we're meant to understand that or if if uh it's meant to be 
kind of vague at this point. It's fun to think about. I just, I, I don't know, e- even having like all of the kind of, um, you know, privileged knowledge that we have from these shard interludes and such, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what a connection means and what it doesn't mean. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't like, it never felt like Scion had any direct control over any of his shards, right? Like, yeah, presumably he would have done some shit if, if so. So what, what does Fair. this mean in that context? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, especially since Taylor's shard was explicitly a, a Scion shard, mm-hmm. um, then, then yeah, that, that's, that's true. Yeah. I, I don't, I feel like we don't quite have enough information to just, it's not like we know and Victoria doesn't know and there's dramatic irony there. It's, it's sure, more yeah. like we, we, we do, we, we know, we know a couple things he doesn't know, but it's not yeah. enough for us to be like, no, like, like we're not shouting at the screen telling her what she should be doing. That's, that's not the feeling. Yeah. This. And I, I think that's a really fun place to be just where we like, just, you know, just being a, just a bit ahead of your character. Yeah, right. I agree. It, it allows, and I think we've talked about this before. This sounds from sometimes when I say things like in the back of my head, it's like, you said this before. <laughs> and, I, and so I always have to, to preface it with that. But um, just like being slightly ahead of your character is just a f- inherently entertaining place to be because uh-huh. you don't feel like you're behind. You don't feel confused, um, but you don't know everything either. So you're you're like on the hook and you're like with you're aligned with them. But just but just you feel a little bit a little bit more in the know, a little bit superior to the character. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Victoria then heads off to try to put the hurt on Eve, but is met by uh, a new green gas that coats everything in slime Parian tries various things, but it seems like the slime basically neutralizes her ability to use cloth animals to rescue people since everything is just too damn slimy. Yeah, I, I like we talked about before, this gas is certainly still threatening and bad, but I love it because it's such a different way than the pink gas. Right. That was like yeah. horrifying and deadly. And this is just like just fucking annoying. <laughs> right. It's, it's funny because it seems innocuous at first. You're like, oh, it's just like there's there's slime there's a, there's nickelodeon slime on everything mm-hmm. and and it's like it rapidly becomes the thing that is going to kill everyone um i mean they get out of it but but yeah it's 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 super super bad yeah and if you put it in the statue of liberty it'll make it move yeah they should try that and then they yeah. can have the statue of liberty fight the titans fuck this is it this is it this is how the, the book ends <laughs> victoria in the statue of liberty uh, <laughs> with whatever song that was. Playing. I was trying to remember the name of the guy. Damn it. Um, is it Jerry Lee Lewis? I, I don't know. How, I wonder how many of our listeners have no idea what we're talking about. Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I think, I think one of the great things about it is we, it, it we feel the we feel the frustration, right? Um, yeah. like, like I think even Victoria says here, we're just running damage control. I know I have to go after Fume uh, after Titan Eve, but there's no damn opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Um, continuing uh, through line throughout this chapter, right? Yeah. The, the, like like you pointed out toward the beginning, this idea where she's just frustrated. She's like, I I just need to understand. I need more knowledge. I need more information. And she doesn't know what to do, right? Like she she can throw herself at them and use all of her newfound, you know jailbroken power which is quite impressive and amazing but it's just having no effect and that's that's somehow even worse right it's like Mm -hmm. oh i'm super stronger now and it does nothing it still does nothing yeah yeah 
So um, the Heartbroken use Roman's power to briefly get enhanced strength and leap across an alley to another building. Uh, I, I really like the moment when Roman saves Juliet by giving her his fingers to bite. It's like, fuck, shit. And, and then that followed up by Victoria using the force field's teeth to bite into Chastity's whip to save her. It's a really cool, like, immediate setup and payoff moment. Yeah, did you, I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but did you, did you see Victoria using her force field's teeth to bite as, like, a conscious thing that she did? Or, like, the force field, or, the, or waste learned... Yes. I don't know. <laughs> I, I saw it as as she's so in concert with the force field now that um these like applications like this are just popping into her mind because waste is sort of supplying them. Like like I don't think I don't think it necessarily would have occurred to Victoria to try the spinning thing if waste hadn't been like, hey, I can do this now, you know, subconsciously. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a that's an interesting way of looking at it. I'll have to think on that. Yeah. Um Look, and, and I just want to pause here to appreciate just good writing yeah. where it is. The, the, the Roman and Juliet thing feels like the whole book was leading to this moment. Yeah. <laughs> like it's it's perfectly like it's there's so many ways in which it's perfect to them. I mean, like the bite me moment is wonderful. Also, the fact that it's kind of recreated the um the whole balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet <laughs> in a way. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I just, I just think it's like, it's perfect. It, it is great. Cause they basically, they basically, they, 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 they loathe each other, but also there's always been that element of like, if you hate each other so much, just like leave, like one of you leave and go away and, and but they, they stay around each other. Yeah. And, and so there, there's clearly this like, latent siblingly level of of care that that they would never admit to and and maybe i'm wrong like maybe i'm reading something in there that isn't even there but like this moment where after they've just like like dragged each other for the whole book and, and even been violent toward each other uh he saves her life at the at the cost of presumably deep bone deep bites into his fingers um it's it's awesome yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think they're, they talk a lot of shit and they even like do a lot of shit against each other. <laughs> um, but they, I, I, when, when obviously, as we see when the chips are down, when it's actually lives on the line, um, I, I, I like it. I like yeah, it a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, interesting this part uh, around here, I don't think I actually pulled out the line, but roughly at this point, this is the first time the word wretch has been used in the text since 17.8. Um, and it wasn't used very many times at all in, in arc 17. Um, it's, it's almost exclusively been my force field in this arc yeah. or, you know, f like fragile one. If she's going to, if she's going to refer to it in her mind, um, even when Victoria catches foil staring at the slime covered outline of the force field, she doesn't think of it as the wretch. She just thinks of it as my force field, the force field. So just wanted to pull that out. Yeah. It, it's one of those moments where the text has been so consistent with the new moniker that I, I, I almost want to chalk this one as up to just an accident. Uh -huh. But if we're going to engage with the text as it is and pretend it's all intentional, then I think it is interesting that a moment where like, the, the moment we hear this is when like 
the wretch kind of fails her because it's too slippery and no one can get it. It can't get a grip on anything. Mm -hmm. And I I think then it becomes very interesting that the moment where it kind of fails her is a moment where she slips back into a previous naming Mm -hmm. paradigm for it. Um, And that is kind of interesting. Yeah. I think I've said this before, but like my, (laughs) the, the way writing works in my mind is that, is that, uh, while those simulation of Victoria Dallin use the word wretch here, regardless of whether <laughs> whether Wildbo wanted to use it or not, so I don't even know if you can call it a mistake. It's it 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 it, it works too well in the way that you just said, right? And also, I, I don't. I mean, I'm not saying I think it was a mistake. I just it, it is. I, I was more. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I love what you pointed out. I guess I'll just say that 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 it's it's the the one time that the wretch kind of lets her down. Is mm-hmm. uh, it's it's suddenly the wretch again? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. funny. Yeah, yeah. Mistake, yeah. mistake is a, a word that has to be in a lot of quotes here because yeah. yeah, I mean, what what is what is a mistake, right? Um, what is an accident? What is like it's, it's such a such a fascinating process writing that yeah. you never really know. So I think I think the general strategy of let's treat everything as if it's intentional is the right one to do. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, so I didn't notice until the reread, but Imp just kind of pops into the scene after they've gotten <laughs> off the rooftop. And we have no idea how she got off the rooftop at all. She's just like, suddenly Imp's there with them. Yeah, uh, we, just, we knew. We just we just forgot. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so after they've got everyone safe, Victoria grabs Foil to bring her closer to Eve so they can use uh, Foil's limit break. And Foil vents about how Parian holds it against her that she assassinated March. Yeah, um let's let's talk about this for a while like first of all i mean i think i think one of those things is is doing is absolutely setting up foil as a potential titan target right as we talked Mm -hmm. about earlier we see that their relationship is strained due to the past actions and it's really funny here because like i don't think anyone would ever fault someone for killing march of all people right (laughs) this is march right but this isn't even the fact that you killed March. This is, I had an image of who you were and you did a thing that distorted that image of me. And I'm having some difficulty dealing with that. Mm-hmm. And I love the complexity of not whether you want to call it fair or not. It doesn't matter whether it's fair. It's the way she feels. And that's, it just strikes me as something so inherently human. Like, like I think Perry would be like, yeah, no, March was a terrible person. I, I hated her and I'm, I'm kind of glad she's gone now, but it has altered the way I look at you. And yeah. I don't know if I can get past that. I I love that. I, that's that seems so inherently human to me. I don't know. I just really yeah. love. I really love that. Right. Well, it's 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 a relatable thing, and it's it's the kind of it's the kind of thing that maps on to very very human, very relatable things that people go through, where someone can act in a way where you're like, "Wow, I didn't see you that way," and and, mm-hmm. and now I do, and I kind of and that, that's going to take. I have to square that with everything that I believed previously, and. I mean, I mean, it's it's almost a kind of when when this kind of thing happens in real life. There's a there's an element of betrayal to it. There's an element of of grief because you because it's almost like the person who you thought they were has died and been replaced by this person who you now think they actually are. Yeah, which which may itself be an unfair kind of leap uh, of logic because it's like a, a person is complicated and can do can do things that that they wouldn't normally do in weird situations and under stress so so like it, it touches on a lot of things that i think are very um yeah relatable i'll use that word for the third time in the same <laughs> paragraph yeah and I, I i like it a lot it is it's just one of those i was about to say one of those things that all couples deal with but of course this specifically is not but it it is like i think 
I think people build up images of the people they're with and, and yeah. eventually you're going to learn something about, or someone's going to do something that distorts that image in some way. And a lot of the difficulties in relationships is dealing with the changing of the person or, or the realization that the person isn't quite the same person you thought. And this is that turned up to like 11 cause it's dealing with murder, <laughs> but right. um, yeah, it's, it's, it is relatable in some way. I agree. Totally. Yeah. This is a good cheat code for relationships is just don't do that in the first place. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, we, I mean, you can sit here and, and Monday morning quarterback, but like, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, it's, it's really like, hard. I mean, part of, yeah, part of like falling for someone involves sort of crafting this image. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pretending it's easy to do that. Yeah. 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 Um, cool. So, um, <laughs> the, the, this interaction with foil wraps up with, uh, so foil apologizes for not spending time with Victoria at the hospital. And then Victoria says that she can look past it. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is kind of the payoff of something we've been very subtly doing with Victoria and foil throughout the entire book. Um, there's, there's always been some kind of back and forth and I don't know if tension or resentments are the wrong word, but there's been a thing between them throughout the whole book. Right. Um, and, and I like in this moment that it's not until foil sees the outline of the wretch covered in goo that she's motivated to, to have the conversation with Victoria in this moment, mm-hmm. to make this apology, um, to, to say, Hey, I'm sorry. I I'm sorry. I didn't keep in touch. I'm sorry. Uh, I disappeared. Um, and, and Victoria doesn't forgive her here. Right. <laughs> I looked past it. Right. Right. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's very in line with Victoria, right? Like she is very much the, an anti forgive and forget type of person. So I think that is absolutely a Victoria trait to say, I'll look past it and to say, we got bigger things to worry about. Um, but and, sorry, uh, I'm just imagining if I like apologize to someone and they were like, I'll look past it. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like, Oh, uh, yeah. Cool. cool. Yeah. I guess right. we're good now. Good yeah. talk. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, and then of course, kind of the whole interaction wraps up with Victoria saying, you have to conserve your anger for select targets and foil commenting. That's a whole lot of concentrated anger. I decided not to respond to that. <laughs> Do you think we're doing something uh, here with this? I think, we had a similar beat with Sveta last week, and now this. Are we moving to some sort of payoff with the way Victoria is like focusing on hatred and anger, in a way? Um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not comfortable making a prediction on that, but I just, it, it really jumped out at me that like, in as many weeks we've had people like saying, "Hey, Victoria, maybe that's not great." <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I mean. I mean, yes, but also I, I don't know what direction exactly. Right. right. Uh, I, I definitely think that things are going to find, there's going to be some kind of reckoning involving Amy. Um, this anger is going to go somewhere, right? It's going to culminate towards something. There's going to be some event yeah. that, that is, the, is, it is the result of this concentrated anger and hate. Um, and I, I feel like it's probably going to be Amy-directed, but it, there could be a surprise, you know, it could, it could kind of like misfire if you will. Like, sure. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think we're definitely going somewhere with all that. Cool. Cool. 
Cool. So the, the reinforcements then began appearing uh, because everyone else has lost their fights except Breakthrough because Breakthrough is the only competent group in the world, um, including some unfinished-looking Dragon <laughs> Mechs and Advance Guard with our favorite favorite guy, Shortcut. I like how you slipped in that <laughs> Breakthrough is the only competent one under your breath. Um, <laughs> yay, Shortcut's here. But th- this, again, <laughs> was my... Oh, Scotty's definitely going to show up moment now. Like, when Dragon shows up, like, reinforcements are here, and everyone's like, oh, yeah. I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> we're, not... we're seen to be concentrating a lot of powerful people in one place. Right. right. Didn't we have this conversation? No, I, I, I forgot about Scotty, but but I think I think she, she arrives, like, at the perfect time, though. Yeah. Scotty um, is never late. It, it arrives precisely when it needs to. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, so before that happens, Kinsey calls to report what she found in her scans. Uh, she says, well, she says a bunch of stuff. But mainly what we care about is that Moose and Prancer are not in there anymore, which we talked about earlier, just agent-derived memories. And uh, also she can get records from past cycles, which is potentially useful. Uh, and then Kenzie's going to say something super important and cr- crucial, and then Vicky uh, hangs up on her. Is it super important and crucial, though? Is it? I, I, def, I definitely was was uh, this was one moment where I was yelling at the at the computer screen. Um, <laughs> you have to draw a line somewhere with Kenzie. Matt. I, I just feel like I just feel like it had to be something right. Like like what was it? What was she going to say? Yeah, it's probably like whatever you do, don't do this. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, lots of stuff. We kind of we kind of already talked about this a bit, but I mean, I I. Do I, I find it interesting? Like, I think what you said is probably going to end up being true that the Mooser and Prancer Titan doesn't have them there. And that's why they're going to be on bad side. And hopefully Fume Hood is still in there in some form. And that's why she's going to be on good side. I mean, like the thing is, we've been talking about this, this concept of personhood. Constantly, because like aren't Damsel and Swansong just like a construction of who Ashley was? And then we have the whole flock situation, which is just a construction of a person based off of shard memory. Like, so there's, I mean, there's, there's a person, you know, like, it's just, it's just, there, there's been things set up around this. There's been seeds laid around this concept of, well, who, what, what constitutes the person when you say moose and prancer aren't in there anymore? What does that mean? Are they not in there in the same way that the flock people aren't in there anymore? You know, like like we we, this is not the first time we've dealt with this. And I kind of like seeing these these threads come together in an interesting way. Yeah, I I, I have nothing really to I have no answers other other than to agree that that that's what I love about this book is it introduced and weaves together all these all these ideas through this through this kind of sci fi conceit. and I do want to know, I do want to answer the specific question, like, if they also find out that, like, Fume Hood is not inside Titan Eve, then I'll, then I'll be, I'll be confused about what I thought certain things meant, and I'll have to reevaluate, you know? Yeah, sure. Which would be just a fun exercise to do also. Yes, yes. Um, there is this little bit, she says, that maybe says something interesting about this whole thing. She says there's whole forks of data that get cut off because old connections broke. Um, so this idea that like 
I'm hmm. not even sure how to put that into context of what what I, what our theories were. Yeah, I mean, I, I the where mine where my mind jumps to is like maybe the reason why uh, Oberyn suddenly gained new powers was like they they created a new connection with Scotty at around that point, um, and it started tapping Scotty's databases for like ideas of how to implement its breaker power. And then it thought of this new offensive thing to do, you know, I, yeah, or or something along those lines. Basically, like that, they're the, the as the shards connect, they're not just sharing power; they're sharing like ideas and concepts yeah. and implementations. Um, so, you know, maybe I can't think of any examples off the cuff, um, but but it kind of makes sense because over the course of the fight, it 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 does seem like Oberyn gets stronger, and, and not just in like he hits harder in some brute way. It's like he uses kind of power uh um tweaks that he didn't prior to that point so yeah and i mean i I think that that feels spot on to me that feels like it's in line with what we understood um with the like the reason why the shards wanted to be connected because like i mean the reason why waste wanted to connect to something because waste is like i could if i just had some help from some other people i could fix this whole force field situation um so i think that's in line with that um, I wonder, like, what is what connections are being broken in that? Like this idea that maybe be, either becoming a Titan or becoming a Titan linked to another Titan breaks other connections. Um, mm. That that part of Titaning is having other connections physically mm. broken um, is interesting to me because of what that what that kind of says about the the importance of this idea of connection. Yeah, yeah, I think we might just have to wait. I, I assumed when they talked about broken connections, I assumed that those were broken all the way back when they killed Scion. But uh, oh yeah, that I, could I, be. But I, 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 yeah, I think we'll. I think that'll all become more clear as we go. But the idea that there's forks of data that get cut off, like, and I think the context here is she's talking about data about who, like, the memories of them. Maybe, maybe it's not the context. I'm just remembering wrong. But I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that, that I, I hadn't thought of it that way. But that's that feels equally valid. Um, I might have to go back and reread. Sure. Um, so the, the last thing we have to talk about here though, is the, the information on the past cycles being available, right? So suddenly we've got not only the memories of every single memory of who these people were, but every single memory of the shards past cycles with these things. Um, and of course we have Chekhov's mollusks standing here with, with, with withdrawal, who is hanging out right next to Kenzie. Um, and those are the ones that got the closest to defeating the entities. And I, I like, I mean, I, there's something thematic to the idea that in order to defeat this, this problem, you're going to have to connect with every instance of every creature that mm-hmm. ever existed and encountered these things. Like yeah. the, the connections are going to extend beyond just humanity to everything. Yeah. I, I like that. That, that would I, be, that'd be fucking awesome yeah <laughs> I, I i keep thinking about the one of the first lines from um the entity interlude of which was something like uh everything is stored back to the beginning mm-hmm. um which at the time you almost just read as oh it it, it, rem- it remembers it remembers all the way back to the beginning it has memories all the way back to the beginning in this context it reads a little bit differently in this context it reads as everything is stored yeah. <laughs> back to the beginning they they have these crystal shard memories probably going back to their home planet yeah and everything yeah. from from then till now man that would so, be fucking awesome to yeah. employ that in some way right exactly exactly 
So a new concept of everyone working together is, <laughs> is literally every one. Yes. One being human. Yes. And every alien that has existed or will exist. <laughs> Gary Oldman dot GIF everyone working yes, together. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah. So Victoria makes a weapon for foil out of metal railing and then carries foil down to wield it against Eve. No, it's such a badass moment. <laughs> it, it is. It is awesome. Victoria is forced to retreat with foil and also rescue Damsel, who has blasted Eve's face and is now falling. So she succeeded in her goal. Uh, Damsel is clearly in trouble and flailingly, flailingly using her blast to try to arrest her fall until Victoria shouts, trust me, and the blasting stops. I love this, right? This seems like the culmination of the these individual moments of Damsel-Victoria interaction that we've had where she basically says, stop blasting. Damsel ignores her and then reaches out with a trust me. And guess who trusts her? Damsel. It's it's awesome. It's got a little swan song in her. I know. Got a little it's so beautiful. It is, it is absolutely beautiful. It, and I, I I don't I don't know where this I like th- this Victoria Damsel stuff has been leading to something for quite a while, right? Mm-hmm. Like ever since Swan Song's death, we've been kind of putting them in direct conflict with each other and then watching them play off each other and like like watch like we've got these little hints of there's there's swan there's some swan song behind those eyes and and what's going on with her and this complicated nature of all this stuff and it's leading somewhere and this is a step this is a step along that journey and it's a really interesting one yeah i'm thrilled to see where this is going to go i i i i'm happy with just how it's evolved in this last couple of chapters um and and generally speaking the last arc or so it's it's been it's been pretty cool ever since she came back into the story with death chester it's it's been fun Mm -hmm. i love it so they fall back waiting for dragon to drop the hammer just as titan scotty arrives behind the hero lines and just completely fucks everything up from the rear i i I love it i love it as just a moment like it's so it's so perfectly timed right like there's this moment where everyone clears out and you're like, okay, dragon, do your shit. It's going to be good. And, and we even get, get word that it kind of worked a little bit in the past. And that's probably why Scotty comes at that exact moment. Um, yeah. And at the end of this chapter, Augur beat her and Titan Oberon had been connected to Augur. We got our backup and Titan Oberon just got his. The connected ones are coordinating. It's like, yeah wonderful doom yeah (laughs) Yeah, i love it it's perfect it's it's a really great way to end like sometimes like we kind of always consistently roll the dice in regards to like what our schedule is to how the chapters are going to end and i love when we just happen to get a a a tuesday saturday that just pair together perfectly and i feel like i feel like this is a perfect place to end the show right um yeah and then it just it happens every so often where the two chapters just link up perfectly, and it's always fun when that happens. I, I agree. I th- I think you expressed that really well. Um, this, is, this is one of those instances where I haven't read the le- the next chapter. Um, and yeah, because we're recording it a day early. Yeah. Ha! ha. And, I'm, and I'm particularly glad that I hadn't because um, uh, I, I I kind of want to only know this much right now because mm-hmm. I feel like we had a lot of conversations today that were like predicated on us being in a place of not not being sure about what's going to happen next so yeah 
I love being in a place of uncertainty where like the potential of the book is open in front of you and you can make predictions and some of them might be right and a lot of them might be wrong. But it's just this this wonderful place where you're never going to be again. We're like, yeah. we don't know. We, and eventually we're going to know. So we'll never eventually this place of, of not knowing will go away and yeah. we'll never be there again. It's a fun, fleeting, transient way of interacting with the text that you can never really go back to. Unless you've recorded hundreds of hours of yourself talking about it. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, with that, let's move on into the answers to the discussion question from last week. All right. So the question was, we stole one of Wildbo's favorite questions, which was, what's your favorite parahumans character who you would predict would be in very few people's top 10? And in retrospect, maybe we should have said top 25. There's a lot <laughs> of characters in this book. Yeah, that's true. Um, a huge number of answers. I didn't even count them up. A colossal number of answers you, you people have no chill um <laughs> so uh let's let's just go through them uh sure. hero of old iron says Anlace, cool guy and and the rare classification of combat thinker plus 45 minutes nice 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 you think we're gonna see Anlace again sure all right <laughs> roger dodger lodgers says revel murden's successor who could absorb and release energy from her lantern honorable mention to grace of the chicago wards for being funny yeah um uh, just a kind of a meta comment it was interesting what people like what motivated people to put uh to put these characters um on, on their listings and yeah it seemed like revel just kind of cool it's kind of cool cool that's power that's, yeah that's a good it's a good reason yeah uh killer kino or kino killer kino says egg a character we love to hate He's so full of open hatred of humanity and parahumanity. He's literally a fragile shell of a person. His power is so disgusting that even other KC 3s look away. Um, yeah, man. Fuck Egg. I love him. I can't, <laughs> I can't wait till Egg cracks and it's the key to the to victory. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Seething chooses Purity, another character we love to hate. Her hypocritical and convoluted thought processes are a great example of how real racists think and behave. It's also fun how she can just live in a pleasant domestic setting with night and fog. Man, I remember those two. They creeped me out. That's yeah. a good answer. I, yeah. I think that is true that Purity would not be in people's top 10. Yeah, I mean, Pur Purity's point of view chapter is, is fantastic because she yeah. just comes off so normal. Um, right, right. Like, yeah. If you read it quickly enough, you might not even notice that this, all the super racism that's in there, right. which Look, is kind of the most insidious kind, right? Exactly. She just downplays it. Yeah. Lone Wolf 8424 goes with Dr. Darnall. He's very impressive, and Victoria always feels better after talking to him. The only problem with Darnall is that Victoria never does the homework he gives her. Yeah. And they basically just kind of go on to talk about how awesome Darnall is and how he seems like he's actually much better than she gives him credit for. Yeah. I would not have thought starting this book that I'd be like... Someone's going to be better at their job than Jessica. But, uh, maybe he is. Maybe, maybe he is. is. He never strangled anybody yet. So. True. <laughs> yet. Uh, Megafire says, The Seamurg, a delightful drama queen underappreciated by the fandom. It's funny to describe her as a drama queen because as soon as Megafire said that, I was like, totally. Yep. yep. But I never thought of it that way before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vice Versailles says, Upper hand. A character mentioned in passing in PRT Quest. He replicates powers through pulverizing hypergravity. No idea uh, who this is, but that sounds cool. Yeah, it sounds like a fun idea. Uh, I, I mean, basically, this this is a this is this character is pulled out because their power seems really fun and, and yeah. creative. I mean, like I, I think you're right that the reasons why people 
pick different people are really interesting. I think there are some people who just pick these people because they're like, they have really cool powers yeah. and I like it a lot. And that's yeah. a perfectly legitimate answer. Yeah. But Purgatorian gives a shout out to Breakthrough's MVP, Natalie. She doesn't get paid enough for the constant interdimensional war she's dragged into and her desire to get these vigilantes to follow basic legal advice is admirable. I agree, Purgatorian, and I might put natalie down as my answer i was considering that yeah i mean certainly with her interlude included uh she she's just an amazing human being yeah i love her nameless 218 says chris he's a great example of a character trying to twist their own fate with brute force he's a great foil to kenzie uh and then also honorable mention to roman who was an interesting personality and also is a rare brute slash master power combo which is fun yeah, yeah. I I wonder, like, I, I seriously wonder where Chris would be, like, on a list, you know? Um, March is coming, and so we're going to do March's Madness again, this time with Ward characters. And this question got me thinking about, like, where I would see different people. And I'm not sure about Chris. I think a lot of people like Chris, but I, I think a lot of people hate Chris, too. I yeah. I mean, I, we've had a few love-to-hate characters. I think he's one where, like, he's so flawed in a way that I find so compelling. Yeah. All right, Coinage gives Tecton, the only tinker with full points and charisma. I really like that guy. Yeah, I like that description too, as as yeah. like he he's 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 a tinker, but he's actually good with people and he's a good leader. Mm-hmm. Pentinent Edgelord says satirical uh, and the Vegas Protectorate were pretty cool, especially the point when they left the Protectorate for Pretender's sake. There was a, a family vibe, a, a compelling found family vibe here. Yeah. Um and then which also prompts me to ask a question that I have to ask every few arcs. Where's satirical? Right in front of you. Right in front of you. It's probably Armstrong. <laughs> no, he can't be Armstrong. He's Darnall. He's Darnall. Oh, God. Uh, July 83 has a soft spot for crappy people trying to become better. So they like Etna, Scribe, and Moonsong, who are all at different points in their journeys and coming from different places. Also, Torso, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I, everyone. Torso was the correct answer to this question. So yeah, right. I can't believe you all just didn't say Torso. Yeah, but then as someone, as someone pointed out on Discord, if everyone said Torso, would not Torso <laughs> then be uneligible because they would be in everyone's top ten? That's true. At, at least people didn't tend to pick the same answers here, so no one failed outright. Yeah. <laughs> Kalsublu V2 says, Furcate, lovable and relatable character. I love Furcate. I hope we see more Furcate. Yeah. Uh, BWU256 acknowledges that Amy is probably not in most people's top 10 for very good reasons, but as a literary character, she's fantastic. She just has the shittiest mindset and worldview, and she's incredibly realistic to the point that many people find her behaviors and statements familiar. I love that she's such a thought-provoking person as well. For me, my central questions concerning Amy are whether it's even possible to redeem her in the context of the story, and in a broader sense, whether she even deserves redemption after what she's done. Which, of course, leads to a bigger question of do bad people in general deserve a second or third or fourth chance? I've long held the belief that everyone deserves a shot at redemption and that everyone is capable of changing for the better. Amy's character honestly challenges those beliefs a lot. I'm eager to see where Wild Bill takes her character, both within the context of Amy's relationship with Victoria and also in a wider philosophical sense. I agree 100%. Yeah, I pulled out. Yeah. I like that a lot. I pulled out that big quote because I was like, yeah, this is the kind of struggling, this is a very well articulated uh, explanation of the struggle that Amy as a character puts us all through. Yeah. And and like, I'm with them in that 
I generally support that belief system that everyone deserves a second chance. I want, I, I believe people can change. I believe anyone can become a better person. Um, and, and I like books that challenge me. So I like that this book, whichever way it ends, this book has successfully challenged that notion and got me to think about that. And I think that's really important. So, uh, it's great character, great lover or hater. She's a great character. And I'm very interested because I think, I think last year, uh, Amy made it to our final four of our March's Madness. And I don't quite think she would be there. Yeah. I mean, it, she is a great literary character, but I have a feeling that she's going to get a big penalty. Yep. Next, yep. Uh, next season. A well-earned penalty. <laughs> yes. Uh, Sage of Stupidity says Othello for his super cool but simple power. Honorable mention to uh, the tinker that Wildbo Powergen once who doesn't even have a name, but their power was slight precognition that would allow them to build exactly what they would end up needing. That's fascinating. That sounds fun, yeah. Yeah. Wolf Tamer 9 loves the normals. Jessica Stan. Who's Stan Vickery? I don't even remember who that is. He's the reporter. Kyle and Glenn Chambers. Man, I don't remember Stan Vickery at all. Yeah, he's the reporter who, who goes to report on the incident at Taylor's High School. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, my God. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. I probably talked about that character for 30 minutes once, and now <laughs> they're completely out of my head. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't remember many of my past teachers' names, and I spent a year with them, so you yeah, know what happens. Um, Extas Naveau lists Night in Fog, two folks with a fucked-up backstory, terrifying power synergy, and very clever names. Good answer. The Chairman, Charman, Charmander, brings us Shatterbird, who shows you how broken a power telekinesis is and also manages to be a fascinating person on top of it. Shatterbird brings with her a lot of mysteries. She's a murder hobo with a refined British accent who reads literature. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Shatterbird is great. Um, I, uh, that's one of the reasons why I consider the witness interlude to be canon in my brain because <laughs> I need, need me some Shatterbird. Uh, Death of the Artist mentions Fiercey. We get a very clear impression of who he is as a person from only a couple of chapters of interaction. And they say, thematically, though, he's probably the most interesting foil for Taylor in the entire story. He's a dark, almost evil reflection of our protagonist, but he's so damn charismatic that you come out of that conversation with him almost agree, uh, the conversation with him almost agreeing with his perspective. I'm just shocked every time I go back to Worm at how short his section actually is, given how disproportionately it sticks out in my mind. Yeah, totally. It, it's... um. I agree. He's so strongly characterized in a really very short amount of page space. Yeah, that was a very powerful section of the book. And I completely agree that that section sticks in my mind in a way that Stan Vickery (laughs) does not. (laughs) Um, But no, I I think I think that's a great answer. He's a really fascinating character and uh, and spirit bomb two weeks in a row. Boom. Did it. Yeah. Uh, King Bob 12 (laughs) gives neuter our salamander boy with drug skin who is just trying to live his best life despite everything yeah gotta love neuter i do like did he die where where is he i don't know yeah where did neuter go i don't know roundest frog says waste the fragile one they are an alien in every conceivable way unknown and unknowable and they still care uh they they say i think of his character uh, i think of this character and i hope they get a happy ending and i think that in and of itself is a wonderful thing that's fun. Yeah, it's a fun idea that like you, you, you actually care about and have positive feelings toward one of these alien monsters who's trying to kill everyone. Yeah, and I mean, 
I would love it if everyone got a happy ending. Sure. I don't know what that even looks like anymore, but <laughs> yes. Um, Professor Deadpool shockingly lists Hoyden because explosions everywhere. Man, I wish I remembered who this character was. Uh, also, she has a very relatable personality, the perfect amount of cocky, but also smart, badass person who has badass powers as the cherry on top. I, I have an I have an ongoing joke with Prof that I don't remember who Hoyden is. Yeah, it's great. It's always fun to watch. I I, I in fact I was like I have to tell Scott. Oh, he already responded to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, ethical ham jimmies. <laughs> oh, no, uh, bring, brings us Gavel, the sole Australian character in the entirety of Parahumans. He took a scion laser straight to the face and kept going. Dude is a beast. He did do that. He had didn't a cool he, power. Didn't he then die? I think he died pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, Nexech lists disaster area from pre-canon drafts, kind of like an undergraduate fume hood. Also, roulette from PRT quest because she's the MVP. I mean, I guess these people fit as not your top 10 characters because I've never heard of them. Yeah, yeah, Nexec really uh, flexed on us hard here because yeah, I've never all these heard of things these. we don't know not anything about. We're bad. Yeah, we're I bad at a, this. I spend a lot of time in in Parahumans world, and if you know about characters I don't know about, I guess you get points. Yeah, um, you can here. You can take my spot on the podcast because you're probably better. <laughs> you're probably better at this than me. <laughs> uh, odd goldfish sheds snuff. We don't know much about him, but also, do we really need to know more? Goldfish points out that it's kind of weird for a character to exist perpetually on the fringes of the story, yet not draw our attention as a persistent mystery. His lack of mysteriousness is mysterious. Indeed. Snuff. Good guy, Snuff. It's really messing with my head here. <laughs> the secret to everything will be Snuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe. It's black holes. We suck all the entities in the black hole or something. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, so there was one uh, comment kind of free floating, uh, not a discussion question answer, but uh, it was it was good because we had talked last time about the, the 12, the 12 laborers of Antares theory, the, the 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 idea that all of Victoria's struggles or many of Victoria's struggles can map onto uh, Hercules struggles um, uh, poster. Iojui uh, leaves a nice comment outlining uh, a lot of the details of these 12 labors theory and how they yeah. connected the story. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, it's, it's a really fun theory and I think they did a very good job of kind of laying it all out there for everyone to see. So if you, for some reason don't visit the Reddit or have not done it lately, go check out our thread and uh, read that comment because I think it does a really good job of summarizing the points of a theory. I find just inherently fascinating. Um, so check that out. And also uh, chair pilot left a, a relatively long comment, putting together a lot of the, evidence for the titan victoria theory mm -hmm. which I, I guess i just pulled that out because it's good to have it kind of all at a glance yeah i don't i don't know if i want that to happen or not i know all right next week's discussion question give an example of how wild bill communicates escalating stakes through writing choices how are we going to explain this one so we came up with this idea of a question and we were having trouble phrasing it so yeah. this is what this is what we settled on and um i think i think an example of what we're kind of looking at here is just this, this general idea that um, in these battles in particular, the stakes have escalated to their highest point. And we, we talked about how 
uh, how the, the, the idea of the doom and everything was set up. Like, I think, I think specifically when you came up with this idea, Matt, you were thinking about like how through Tristan, we communicated this idea of the doom and gloom of the situation. Um, yeah, that was my specific kind of grounding example. Yeah. Um, but, but, but this it, happens yeah. every, like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the highest stakes, right? It's just anytime stakes have been escalated, which I think in worm, um, you're, you're going to find a lot of examples of that. Um, but I, I think it's interesting to see how that is communicated. Yeah, right. I, I, I think that, that there's definite subtle, subtle and even more overt things that Wildblood does to make you really feel in your gut that things are, are worse now and more serious now. Mm-hmm. And that's, those, are the, those are the types of things that I'd like to draw attention to. Um, not going to give any more examples because I don't want to, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, spoil people's creativity, but like yeah. stories full of examples. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. and you could even use the Tristan example. Um, if you just want to expound on it in a way that we didn't talk about. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all we got for you this week on we've got ward. You are all part of this show. So feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or at, our Twitter account at GotWormPod. My personal Twitter is at ScottDaily85. And Matt's is at uh, Meme Theory. Because that's what <laughs> Matt's been talking about a lot lately. That's what I've been tweeting about. He's just been t- tweeting I, about some memes. I did a tweet storm. You did? A real one. A legit tweet storm. And then you um, ended it with Sword Without a Hilt. And I died. <laughs> I am dead now. Yeah. It wasn't. I'll, I'll have you know I didn't plan out the whole thing just to make that statement. I don't believe you. Uh, that's fine. Um, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we recommend you do so so you never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, pretty much anywhere in the world that you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this show and all the other shows on the Doof Media Podcast Network over at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you can find uh, Do the Right Thing, Deep Impact, Media MD, uh, our shows. <laughs> yeah, the words, the, the Deep Impact uh words last week were hellish numerous dim dashing and you know what i've written a story for that podcast every week since i found out about it except last week because of thanksgiving thanks thanksgiving just fucked me man yeah sure blame blame the pilgrims i do i mean honestly fair yeah we we can blame them for a whole lot (laughs) uh also we did the hero of ages book club uh on at the end of november we so did check out that. We so did. now we've done the entire Mistborn series, I guess. And we just this past week recorded uh, an episode of the Doofcast in which we were talking about season one, A Legend of Korra. That is not going to be out for a couple weeks, uh, actually 10 days from the day we're recording this, I think. Not this Friday, but next Friday. But uh, I can safely say that was a very good conversation where you and I got together with our Australian friends that we talk about all the Avatar stuff with. And uh, it was great. Elliot and Ruben are always fun to talk to, especially about the Avatar stuff. So it was fun, look yeah. forward to that in a couple weeks. Yeah. Well, if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider going on over to patreon.com slash doofmedia and donating there. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you access to tons of great bonuses, um, like being able to vote in the fan art and costume contests, hangout sessions with us, the doof folks, um, access to live streams of many of our recording sessions, including this one, and of course the excellent Discord, which is just full of of awesome folks. It and is. 
It, it sure is. And as always, uh, make sure you head on over to Wildo's Patreon, wild, uh, uh, patreon.com slash Wildo, and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. This week, special thanks to new patron, Bidoof uh, Flower Priest. And, Thank uh, you so much, Flower Priest. Yeah, we really appreciate your your flowers and your patronage. Indeed. Hey, how do the British people say Patreon on Magnus Archives? Because they say it a funny way and it makes me laugh. Um, is it like Patreon? I think they say Patreon. Patreon, yeah. I, th- I, think that's, I think that's exactly right. We should say it that way. Why don't we say it that way? Yeah. Let's do it from now on. Patreon.com slash Wildbow. All right. Yeah, there you go. And of course, uh, thank you so much for everyone that donates, but thank you for everyone that listens too, because if you can't afford to donate, that's okay. There's tons of ways you can help us out. You can rate and review us on all of your podcatcher stuff. You can share the podcast. You can just listen to it. If you're listening right now, it means you've made it to the end. You didn't drop off early and you're the best. You specifically, all those other people don't get to be called the best, but you do. Yep. So so thanks for hanging out with us. Yes. Brand Brandon. What? <laughs> Are you just hoping that one of them is named Brandon? Yes. It's <laughs> probably a good guess. It'll be really weird for them. Here, here, I'm gonna do it too. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. Uh that's all we've got for you this week. Uh next week we will continue to suffer from arc eighteen radiation. We gotta get more radiation puns in here. Oh,